Greetings, friends, and welcome once again to the critically acclaimed podcast. It's a film review podcast where good taste and bad taste clash in an epic battle of good versus evil. That's a sound effect I had. Sorry. <laughs> That's fine. It'll do. That's all I got. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. I write for Slash Film. Hmm. Uh, with me, as always, is my far more intelligent co-host. That's a lie. That's, uh, my name William. is William Bibiani. <laughs> I am also a critic. I write for Slash Film sometimes. Uh, I write for The Rap sometimes, uh, but mostly I podcast, and uh, everyone calls me Bibs. And uh, although we didn't podcast last week, no, just because of a scheduling snafu, uh, we, we both had issues going um, on. I had some personal stuff going on. It was a rough week. Yeah. Uh, we're going to try to make up for it. Uh, we realize we've been a little spotty with critically acclaimed, and I really want to make sure we're back on a weekly schedule this month. Yeah, well, we've we've had a we both had some uh, some personal things going on recently. Yeah. Uh, no, nothing that's going to permanently change the podcast, though. No, um, but it's, it's just, just been it's been rough. The, the last let's be frank here, the last year or so uh, has been rough for both of us. Um, we're trying to do our best, yeah. um, but but, uh, if, uh, well, if, but if, we are catching up, yeah. uh, and we have six feature films we're going to be reviewing this week, and as a, by means of catching up. And, and if you miss our podcasts when we don't have anything up on the main feed for for a few days, um, you can always head on over to our Patreon page because we do update that even more regularly. We recently released a, a commentary track. Uh, for Hard for, Ticket to Hawaii. Yep, one of the best cult films ever made. Uh, we did a April Fool's Day uh, movie trivia hangout uh, over the weekend. That was a lot of fun. Thank you to everyone who showed up for that. Thank you to all of our patrons. Without you, this show wouldn't exist, even the, the free one. Uh, and uh, if you would like to join up, there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of cool stuff over there. So give a quick shout out to that. But <laughs> we... Have movies to review. We got a little bit of catching up to do. Uh, so this week we're going to be reviewing the new releases: Dungeons and Dragons: Honor Among Thieves. I always want to say Honor Amongst Thieves, just which among, I, which I'm not sure. I think would be more grammatically accurate. But uh, let's see. We're reviewing the new film Tetris. We're reviewing the new film John Wick Chapter Four, newish. Uh, we're reviewing Tori and Lokita. Mm-hmm. We're reviewing The Lost King. Yes, and. Smoking causes coughing, which isn't just true. It is a movie. <laughs> it is a movie. Uh, and I'd like to start with uh, the biggest new release from this week. Okay. Work our way around a little bit because uh, I, I don't know about you. What What is your experience with Dungeons and Dragons before uh, this movie? Uh, here's a little bit of personal trivia. My, mm. my late uncle... His name is Barry. Hmm. Uh, was personal friends with Gary Gygax, the Whoa. co-creator of Dungeons and Dragons. That's awesome. Uh, when I was around, pretty young, I was like maybe ten or so. Hmm. Uh, he gave me one of those like first edition white boxes, like one of the earliest editions oh, of yeah. Dungeons and Dragons. Before uh, it got all fancy. Yeah. And uh, and this was at a time when Dungeons and Dragons was still like a little bit on the outs culturally. Hmm. There was a uh, a bit of an uproar in like the early eighties where, uh, it was a proper moral panic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, a, a lot of, uh, panicky parents, uh, felt that Dungeons and Dragons was driving kids insane and into the arms of Satan and all, all kinds of other, uh, mm-hmm. uh, 
illicit things. Dungeons and Dragons is a role-playing game, if you've never played it, and uh, you take on a character, you create a character with a name, a backstory, and abilities, and... And it it takes place in a facsimile of medieval Europe, essentially. Basically, uh, vaguely Middle-earth, and um, and one person working with you as a team comes up with a story for everyone to play through, and you get to make decisions that affect the outcome of that story and your characters, and... And it's it's all number-crunching. It's based on, like, stats and rolling dice yeah it's, it's very it's very nerdy but in a fun way and there was a weird moral panic about it partly because children are pretending to do magic mm. that's satan's work and yeah, that sort of general a... vibe but there was also this idea that children are so susceptible to suggestion that pretending to be mm. an elf Will permanently destroy their psyche. Yeah, there was e- there was even a movie about it called Mazes and Monsters. I which... just wrote about that for uh, for yeah, Slash Film. Actually, it was Tom Hanks's first leading role in a film. That's right, and uh, yeah, he plays uh, a college student who gets really into. They couldn't use the name Dungeons and Dragons, yeah. so they called it Mazes and Monsters in the movie. And uh, he gets so deeply involved in it, he forgets who he is, and he thinks he is his yeah. character. And, and he ends up like lost in New York, and he kills a guy. And then mm. it's all like very sad. And all, at the end of the movie, all of the characters except for Tom Hanks are like, and then we all grew up and moved on with our lives, as symbolized by never playing Mazes and Monsters again. <laughs> and we all visited Tom Hanks to see if how he was doing, and it turns out the madness had overcome him and he will forever think he is a cleric. Yeah. And it's like, Wow, that's so, uh, some, that's some bullshit scare film right there. But uh, but my uncle, super nerd, you know, yeah. new, hobnobbed with you know science fiction authors and all the rest, and played Dungeons and Dragons before it was cool, um, gave me one of these boxes, and I didn't know from Dungeons and Dragons. I was sure. like ten. I wanted to play Nintendo. Um, and he said, you know, it's really, really fun to sort of read through this stuff. And you're re- it's like, I don't want to read through all this stuff and roll dice. Mm-hmm. It's too involved for it's me. It's a little involved. And so I just kept it on a shelf and eventually got pushed to the back of the shelf. And the box ended up getting, like, crushed. And I had to throw oh, it away. that sucks. That thing's worth, like, $5,000 these days. It probably is. <laughs> if, I had kept, if I had kept it in good shape, it'd probably be worth something. Um, yeah. Uh, then later on, when I was in high school, I actually uh, decided to give it a try. When I was around 15 or so, mm. uh, friends had a like a, a one-night campaign uh, at his birthday party, and I tried that, and I had a good time. Yeah. Uh, so I tried doing it a little bit more in high school. By the time I got to college, other people tried to start campaigns, and I was too busy going to Rocky Horror and trying mm. to have sex at that point, so I, I kind of lost interest. But um, that's been sort of it. Then I didn't see yeah. it again until 2000, when the first uh, theatrically released feature film came out. Yeah, and, starring um, Jeremy Irons. Yeah, Jeremy um, Irons, uh, Justin Whalen back when he was hot shit. Thora Birch. Uh, yeah, Thora Birch back when she was hot shit. Yeah. Uh, Marlon Wayans. Mar- Marlon Wayans. Yeah. And and a few other actors besides. Mm-hmm. Uh, look up the story of how that film got made some yeah. ki- sometime because it took like twenty fucking years to get that thing off the ground. The, the director, his name was Courtney Solomon, bought the rights, the film rights, the Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. And he was like nineteen years old. He was really yeah. young. And he really wanted to turn it into this gigantic, like, multi-million dollar epic. And Mm -hmm. uh, just the way the rights kept changing hands, who owned the game, and what producers were involved with it, and what actors and directors were attached kept on shifting. Eventually something happened where he had to direct it himself, even though he didn't want to. Mm -hmm. And he did. And he came up with this thing in the year 2000. It looks like... The special effects cheap. are so cheap, it looks like it came out, like, a decade before. Yeah. Uh, the, the writing is really terrible. Uh you can kind of see the vibe they're going for. They played a game and they tried to turn a campaign into a movie. Yeah. Uh, 
Didn't really work. It's pretty terrible, that movie. However, like, Jeremy Irons terrible. is really fun in it. Jeremy Jer- Irons is not phoning it in. He is giving the full hammy kids I feel movie like, performance, and I think he's a lot of fun in that. I feel like he's... He's trying to see, like, when the director's going to rein him in. Like, he's yeah. pushing back at the director at some point. Uh, yeah, old, he, he, he just overacts like crazy. It's it's not a good performance. There's an old story I heard about Marlon Brando, where later in his career, Marlon Brando, the first day he would go on a set, he would do two takes. One take where he was really trying, uh-huh. and one take where he wasn't at all. Okay. And he, if the director could tell when he was really trying, he would give that movie his all. Hmm. And the director couldn't, half-assed and it is apparently <laughs> fine. I suppose that's a... That's a work ethic, I suppose. I, I, don't, um, I don't think it's a great work ethic. No. But it might have been what happened with uh, 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 with Jeremy Irons. He was like, I'm going to give one really big, fuck-off, melodramatic, fun mm. one, and I'll do one that's like super serious mm. and like dramatic. He liked the weird one, so that was my performance <laughs> that day. It's fine. Um, uh, and Jeremy Irons admittedly can can play really like good big characters oh, sure. like he, he gives great subtle performances as well but yeah, yeah when, he, then, when he's then you watch him in Die Hard with a Vengeance and he's yeah, if you watch him play like yeah super yeah. villains he's capable of that as well yeah. uh, that movie's terrible it yeah. had two sequels that yeah. nobody talks about I saw one of those I couldn't tell you which one it was they were straight to video or straight to the sci-fi channel uh, uh, and you know what wasn't bad uh, well, I remember thinking I remember thinking to myself it's reasonably well written for a low budget fantasy film. One of them was called uh, Dungeons and Dragons: The Book of Vile Evil, uh-huh. which is right right up there with like the Desolation of Smaug as like one of the. It great sounds like a subtitles. joke title. Yeah, is what it is. It the sounds Book like of Vile Evil. It, it sounds like the the like the parody film that you would make on a low yeah. budget of a Dungeons and Dragons uh, kind of vibe. But yeah. Uh, then, then it would just sort of went to sleep for a while. Yeah. And there was a long time where they were trying to get another Dungeons & Dragons feature film off the ground. Mm-hmm. I know Joe Manganiello was attached at one point. Like, he was going to produce or even write it. Weird. Uh, just because he's a big, like, D&D yeah. nerd. And a lot of people are uh, big D&D nerds. Well, uh, I, I, we've I even had over... movies that were based on D&D campaigns. That was uh, the Vin Diesel film, The Last Witch Hunter. Oh, it was a D&D campaign. Yeah, yeah he was like, yeah, he was know, like um, his... That was his role-playing character, and he wanted to make a movie around it. And that that's happened a lot. Um, yeah. uh, there's a... a Similar game to Dungeons and Dragons called Dragonlance, oh, yeah. uh, which uh, has yeah also spun off into its own uh, novel series. Yeah. Role playing games uh, have become a lot more popular uh, in the last twenty five years or so. They, they used to be a bit, yeah. little bit more of a fringe interest, and yeah. now like everybody and even celebrities are getting into it. I've never uh, successfully uh-huh. played a role playing game. Oh yeah, I, yeah. I've, I've been in a lot of situations where everyone's like, "Hey, we should do a role playing game," and everyone's like, "Yeah," and then that's where the conversation ended. I, uh, I, I tried in college; I made a character, uh-huh. and uh, to go into a little bit, uh, yeah, you can choose like a character cl- uh, class they call yeah. it, and depends uh, on the role playing game. You choose the species, and uh, you're allowed to like equip your character at the beginning. Give it. You have like a, essentially a bank of money, and you can spend yeah. a certain amount of points to give your character like your character details and equipment. Yeah, and I created. Uh, a big mean bruiser guy who uh who is a chef nice i, I gave him like food and stuff yeah. and uh and his his uh, specialty fighting because you you fight there's a lot yeah. of fighting going on especially fighting mood was just called pummel yeah just punching guys so so it was essentially like a big tough chef and i loved making the character uh-huh. that i didn't want to do the game after that i just made is, the character and passed him this off this is the point i've been wanting to try to make and yeah. this is the thing i think is kind of weird about uh Dungeons and Dragons as an actual activity, the mm. role playing game, is a social thing. 
Yeah. It's unless you're playing like one of the video games, which I don't think there are that many, but maybe I'm wrong, but there's a lot of similar games. Um you you have to have a group, at least a few people, uh, in order to put to put a game together. Um I wasn't that kind of a nerd. <laughs> I was the I don't have people to get together oh. with nerd. And so what I did was watch movies and things, or play video games and like these are all fine, but it's just, it's a different kind of uh, geekiness. And as a result, I'm not terribly familiar with the minutia of Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. I know certain things, certain bits of iconography. I can, I could recognize a beholder. If a beholder was in here, I would be like, well, look at that beholder. Gee whiz. Well, now you can re also recognize a displacer beast because they put one of those in the new movie. I couldn't tell. But I, didn't, I don't remember if they told me which one they was. They, they said it. Which they one was the displacer beast? Was it, it the, the panther? with the, the, the panther with the tentacles. Okay, so it's here's called the thing. Displacer beast. They introduced the panther with two tentacles that can project a hologram of another panther with two tentacles. Oh. And you know what? I didn't know what it was called, but I, I got it. They, they yelled the name. Oh, I didn't, this, it, but like that a, didn't mean anything to me. We're, we're trapped in a maze with a displays. Like they said something. Yeah, they, but they it, called it out. It's so fast. Okay. That I, someone who didn't know what a displacer piece was, uh -huh. couldn't pick up on that. All I saw was the creature in action. But here's my, here's what I'm going to say is actually good about this. And what I actually think is really good about this movie, mm -hmm. Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves. You do not have to be an expert in Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. To yeah. understand any of it and and not in that way where it's just like this feels like everything is just so densely packed I need a Wikipedia page. It's like no, they actually understand mm -hmm. here's what I actually need to introduce you to. Uh -huh. Here's what's primal enough I don't really need to introduce it to you very much like magic, mm -hmm. you know, like a, a teleportation well, wand or whatever like that. Mm -hmm. Like that's pretty straightforward. We just name that, tell you how it works, boom. But they introduce what I need to know. And they make anything that they're not going to actually talk about clear mm. so that I'm not distracted by nerdy in-jokes or uh, uh, a ton of lore. Yeah. And, uh, the, and the, were... the, the story is very mm. self-explanatory yeah, in a way that a... it's just, it just feels like, a, it feels like a real movie and not fan service. Yeah. Well, you know? the, the problem with uh, Dungeons and Dragons uh, and turning it into a feature film is you're running into uh, sort of like trying to readapt the standard that everything else came from. Yeah. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons and Tolkien kind of between the two of them, mm -hmm. uh, it pretty Defined much the look yeah, and in sound invented what we call high fantasy. Uh, yeah. So if it's the got terminology that we use, the, the wizards the and the spells. And the, you know, yeah. I mean, I know images of night errantry go back to medieval times, but the yeah. whole idea of what we think of as modern fantasy as a fictional genre yeah. uh, kind of comes from the, you know, these two sources. Yeah. So when you're going to make Dungeons and Dragons do a film, there's really nothing to separate it from any other fantasy movie. Um, right. Ir the dragon yeah. uh, is, is just a D and D knockoff. Well, actually, it's, so, actually it's just a star Wars knockoff. Well, the story is a star it, Wars yeah. knockoff, but, but the world yeah. of, of like dragons and wizards is D and D. Agreed. Uh, but like, but then, then the other thing is weird is that there's no, I mean, I know there are books and things, but there's no established familiar characters. Mm hmm. That you have to include yeah. in order to... Like, if you're going to do a Lord of the Rings movie, it probably should have a, 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 a Gandalf, Gandalf uh, or Galadriel or someone in it. Because th that's who we know. But the whole point of Dungeons & Dragons, aside from 
you know, certain entities, magical orders, mm-hmm. monster types. The whole point is everyone at home created their own characters, which yeah. is also a danger as well, because what you're doing here is you're making a movie that is basically got to be more exciting than what people are doing at home with their own imaginations, yeah. and, which uh, is a real risk. From what I understand, this film, and this is just as wise a way to go about making a D&D mm-hmm. film, was based on a campaign. They invented sure. these characters, but it was also done by... Um, John Francis Daly and and his uh, directing partner Jonathan um, Goldstein. Jonathan Goldstein, yeah, uh, who did Game Night, and they've done a few comedy films before, so mm-hmm. they they know films. They've made a couple. Yeah, they they have an interesting uh, an interesting filmography because their first film was that quasi reboot of National Lampoon's Vacation as directors. Mm. And that movie sucks. Yeah, that, that, that movie's pretty abysmal. That movie's genuinely um, terrible. Uh, but then they actually, the, then they got better, and they did Game Night shortly afterwards. And Game Night is one of the best studio mm. comedies of the last few decades. Yeah, it, it just is. Yeah. Uh, the, the the line Rachel McAdams has at the end, man. Oh god, it's one of the <laughs> one of the funniest damn bits ever. But uh, everything Jesse Plemons does, mm. one of the funniest damn things ever. It's a brilliant yeah, movie. I, so that's one where it's like. You watch those two movies back to back, and you ask yourself, was, "What happened with Vacation?" Was, because I don't was buy one a fluke, or are they on an upswing? Uh, uh, ordinarily, I would ask that question if this was like some sort of independent thing. But because uh, they're both major studio releases, uh, it suggests to me that it's far more likely that studio notes hurt Vacation than studio notes saved Game Night. <laughs> because Game Night is very particular. Yeah, Game well, Night Game, is very elegantly constructed. Game Night is a little bit more story. It's a little bit more character-oriented. I feel like Vacation is like more gag-centric, yeah. and it's also a, kind of a gross-out movie. They're trying to do like really outrageous stuff, and... Maybe that wasn't their wheelhouse. Maybe they're a little bit more comfortable with story. And uh, there's a lot of story in D&D, and I yeah. think it, it ultimately emerges as something perfectly watchable. It's, a, uh, it's, it's an it's entertaining bright, film. Uh, you can tell that they're going for a very particular vibe with this new Dungeons & Dragons movie. They're and trying, the, and that vibe is The Marvel. Princess Bride. Oh, I was going with uh, Marvel. Oh, okay. That very flip mm. kind of... Um, like we're in a fantasy universe, but we're too cool to really acknowledge it. Like they're, they're, uh, they're not too cool to acknowledge it, but no one's going to stop joking at any meaningful time. Yeah. And that can, well, that can well, get tiresome, but I think here, here well, it mostly works. Well, here, here's what I appreciate. The characters are all like... Like they're they're comedy characters, sure. But I feel like only the Chris Pine characters, like the one Quipster, and everybody else, actually is bringing some, something different to the equation, which is you know very D and D. They're all thieves, uh, and we learn in a flashback uh, how they sort of all, the main characters all united, stealing stuff. And they were all they're noble thieves, though they don't ever. They steal from the rich and give yeah. to the poor. They steal from the rich and keep for themselves. Yeah, uh, but they only steal from the yeah. rich. They're not at, they're not total uh, assholes. Chris yeah. Pine's arc is that he has a, a daughter. She's like around thirteen years old, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, her mom died. Yeah, and he has been seeking a magical widget that might be able to resurrect her. Yeah. Uh, the, in order to steal such a thing, they have to team up with an evil wizard. The evil wizard sells them out. Uh, Chris Pine and his uh, Closest partners, played by Michelle Rodriguez, get jailed. Yeah, and, and so they're sent away for like two years mm. to like one of those like weird Conan towers. Yeah, and I love that the they have to sort of appeal their parole. Yeah, and the parole board is like, 
monsters and dragon people, and that's pretty cool. That's pretty funny, yeah. And, and, so, uh, and, they, and I like that the monster people are practical effects. It's people mostly in, like, practical effects. in like, uh, animatronic masks. It, it really, really cool. helps, because I know a lot of this movie is CG, but the more of it that's practical, the more it feels real. Mm. They understand the need for a balance, and I think that's a good that's a good instinct for directors mm. with this kind of material. So, yeah, um, they, they, they break out of prison enough to get uh, a team together and commit a series of heists throughout the course of the movie in order to... Uh, achieve their goals. It's it's all pretty standard. They, off they have stuff. to stop the bad yeah. guy, save the teenager, mm-hmm. uh, redeem themselves, learn a valuable mm-hmm. lesson. By the end, mm-hmm. you've so, got uh, you've got a wizard played by uh, Justice, Justice Smith, Smith yeah. uh, who is a huffling wizard. who's not a very good wizard, but he's a pretty yeah. good thief, and he needs yeah. to learn to believe in, in himself. Yeah, you've got uh, uh, Chris Pine is a bard and also a thief. You got Michelle Rodriguez, who's a barbarian. She gets to kick a lot, but. She's good at it. Hmm. Uh, you got Sophia Lillis uh, from the It movies. She's a uh, sh- uh, shapeshifter, and she can shapeshifter. Tur- turn into any animal. Yeah, including, something something uh, the plot conveniently forgets about when they want to put her in danger sometimes. Like, oh no, she's um, going to fall off this thing. Be a bird. She could be a bird. We know she can be a bird. Why I'm, are we even... I'm, f- I'm fine with that. I I, it's a little that. thing. Yeah. It's a little thing, but it bugged me that they just completely... Fr- mm. It bugs me when she forgets about it. Yeah, uh, that feels like you're just writing in a plot hole so that you can have a silly moment. But um, you've got Hugh Grant as a funny con man. You've got Roger Jean Page uh, as a paladin who's like, oh yeah, yeah. he has he's, he's like the, the handsomest, most capable man in the world. Yeah, yeah he, he's like if Elijah Wood's character from Spy Kids 3D was in your Dungeons and Dragons mm-hmm. thing. It's just like he's way op. Like he's his, very funny and clever, he, he's but he's the, like uh, he, he's the yeah. non-player character that the yeah. DM uh, got was yeah. in charge of. It's like you know, you guys are failing. I need to bring in like another character to help you out a little bit. Yeah, so you're not doing well on this game. Yeah, exactly. I, I feel like this film would have benefited from like a cutaway to little kids playing D and D, like dictating what the characters I, are doing. You, you think at that would have been kind of fun? Credits that would have been a fun thing. To yeah, do. because here's the thing with it, and this is the thing that's kind of weird. This is a very competent, well-made three, three and a half star fantasy adventure film. Yeah. Are the characters Co- are compet- fun? competent is the word for competent, it, but it's, it's not, a good not, word. Not, it's, not much beyond. But that, it's difficult but yeah. to do that with this kind of fantasy realm, hmm. where it actually feels like you've you've got a real story with real stakes, characters I actually care about. Uh, the action sequences are kind of fun and inventive sometimes. Uh, the humor mostly works. Yeah, uh, the, the bad guys actually seem like really bad guys, and I'm actually like yeah, worried yeah. about you. Like yeah, all the, that the stuff. Evil, is good. evil wizards are pretty cool. Yeah. Um, there's a really clever conceit where they use uh, like sort of a portal uh, yeah. wands to, to stage part of the heist, and I thought that part was really they, cool. They established things that could only exist in this universe in a way that the audience totally gets it, and then you build story around that that other movies can't do. That's and it, good. And it doesn't get so elaborate or bogged down by its mythology that it loses uh, a certain uh, brightness, which well, I appreciate. I, I want to talk about that in a second, but I just think the thing that's kind of weird about it, and I was thinking about this afterwards, I was talking out with my partner, is that... the. When you think about, like, when you're adapting a pre-existing thing, mm-hmm. an intellectual property, if we must use the corporate speak, uh, you want to try to capture what is the thing that makes that unique? What is that makes that special? I don't think it's the world of Dungeons & Dragons that makes Dungeons & Dragons special. I think it's the players that make it special. Yes. I think it's the, the people bringing their own material to it. And there's something... At no point in this film... Is it ever directly suggested that what we're watching is a player campaign come to life? Mm. And that's okay. Okay. It's just kind of generic. And yeah. it feels like they kind of lost like the thing 
that made this incredibly distinct from all the other fantasy stuff. They just kind of let that go and just said, we're just going to use Dungeons and Dragons for a backdrop for a fun fantasy story about thieves and wizards and shit. That's fine. Yeah, that's a fine, fine approach. I, I, just, I, I would just argue maybe you're not doing the uh, most you can with the material, but whatever, it's okay. Mm. You decided to go the three, three and a half star fantasy movie route. Yeah, the the uh, the unique things about Dungeons and Dragons mm. are certain things like like the Displacer Beast. Sure, uh, that's not something you would find in Tolkien. No, that's, that's, that's a, that's a specific entity. a specific yeah. Dungeons and Dragons thing. There's um, a scene late in the movie where our characters through plot machinations have to run through a gigantic maze in the middle of a coliseum. Yeah. Uh, and, that's very Dungeons and, 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 the, and the and the maze shifts around them. That's a Dungeons and Dragons conceit. And yeah, yeah. there's a the displacer beast in there. There's uh they open up a treasure chest and there's like a monster mouth inside of it. That's a very Dungeons and Dragons conceit. Yep. Uh Stuff like there's an owl bear, yeah, uh, which is a, a, a Dungeons and Dragons monster. Everyone likes a good owl bear. Uh, but apart from that, I don't think that's an issue of the film. I think it's an issue issue with Dungeons and Dragons. Arguably. I think uh, we're looking at what the problem we had with something like Valerian, which was a, a hmm. precursor to Star Wars. Yeah, but Star Wars had. L- lapped it in terms of its popularity and its influence. So when you finally made a movie of what inspired Star Wars... It doesn't feel fresh. Yeah, it feels like, okay, that's another sci-fi thing. Yeah. No, this just feels like a pretty standard issue. Mm. What's weird about that, though, is that it feels like a standard issue, three, three and a half star Mm. fantasy adventure film. But here's the funny thing. We actually don't have that many of those. Not these days. They used to be a lot more common. But they didn't used to be very successful. A time time. when high fantasy was tried a lot in theaters. Yeah, but uh, there was still they were mostly on the lower budgeted uh, end of that spectrum. That's true. You would get a few high profile things like Willow, which didn't do that great, or Conan the Barbarian, which um, did okay, but mm -hmm. still wasn't you know a huge world changer of a thing. And and indeed, the first Conan became bigger as time went on. But but the first Conan in particular actually really minimizes the magical stuff. Mm. There's there's a big giant snake. Yeah, there's but like there's it's definitely magic at the end. There's definitely but, magic, but it's not like a the Conan the Destroyer, the sequel, that has a lot more magic. It's more true. monsters and more visual effects and I like that movie fine, but a lot of people uh, are really really anti Conan the Destroyer and I don't get it. I like Conan the Destroyer yeah, a lot. It, it's uh, not as good as the original, but it's fun. I like I, that movie. I, I, it's another case where I saw the sequel a couple times before I saw the original. Sure. Um uh for some reason, people really like the movie Krull now. Uh, Krull's <laughs> not great. There's so much stuff I like in Krull. There's a, lot, there's, there's a lot to like about Krull, but it's not a great movie. There's great creatures, some awesome set pieces. The whole set piece. The, the spider bit. The spider great, with yeah. the giant hourglass in the middle of the web. That is a glorious it's, creation. Yeah, it's like 20 foot spider sequence. And it's really, really cool stop motion effect. Yeah. It's a really scary spider. There's really cool stuff in Krull. Mm. Also, Crawl doesn't make any fucking sense whatsoever. No, no, that's, <laughs> it doesn't actually makes about work. as much sense as an episode of He Man. Sure, um, but yeah, there, uh, and there's stuff like Dragon Slayer. There, there were a lot of these high, uh, high-profile yeah. fantasy films for a long time. Yeah, but most of them just didn't do very well, which uh, is weird. Even Princess Bride, we love it now. At the mm. time, mild success at most. Yeah, um, I feel like th- thanks for bringing up the Princess Bride because I feel like that's something mm. that sort of leaked into the DNA of a lot of fantasy films mm-hmm. to be uh, fair you brought it up first earlier yeah, um, but yeah but uh the, the princess bride the rob reiner film uh a, f- a film i love I, great th- I think it's really really great love that movie. um uh, has a, a certain kind of affable breeziness that is almost impossible to replicate mm. um something about what rob reiner did in that movie and uh the idea that they did actually cut away from the action and we mm. learned that it was actually just in a storybook yeah um so yeah, it was modern day uh, bookending material. Yeah. But what's really, great... really helps to kind of 
have a, a good adventure slash mm-hmm. love story in a fantasy world, mm-hmm. but also wink that it's it's okay to accept that a lot of this is really kind of silly. Well, it's, it's weird because they cast a bunch of funny actors mm-hmm. in it, and you have a lot of really funny jokes in it, but the movie knows when to take itself seriously. Mm-hmm. Like, the movie never mocks Inigo's journey of, of vengeance yeah. against the guy who killed his father. They know they know never to make fun of that. In fact, they, they play like sort of really soulful music yeah. and it talks about it. That's, that stuff is always important. That stuff always mm. works. You And even the action sequences. Princess Bride isn't a particularly action-heavy fantasy movie, but when uh, the, the Dread Pirate Roberts fights Inigo in a sword fight on top mm. of the Cliffs of Insanity, <laughs> they Rob Reiner knew... This has got to be the best sword fight ever filmed. Mm. And he gives it his all, and it is up there. It's, it's, it's pretty good. It's a legitimately I, great sword I, fight. I, I don't like the Star Trek monochrome sky soundstage that they filmed on, but whatever. Uh, whatever. You could argue that that was the aesthetic they were kind of going for. Maybe but, so. but regardless, they knew when to take it seriously. And that's actually something I think this new Dungeons & Dragons movie does pretty good. Mm. They understand that in order for us to give a shit about this world... They need to give a shit about this world. Mm-hmm. And so even though it's, you know, it's kind of familiar, we've seen similar stuff before, Chris Pine's journey to getting through his grief and connecting with his daughter and all that kind of stuff, they never make fun of that. It can be the source for humor, but it's never a joke. Mm-hmm. They never wink about it. They never apologize for it. They never apologize for taking something in this movie seriously, but it is consistently breezy, arguably to a fault. Maybe it could have been a well, little was, bit more intense. But I was going to say that that it's it's not breezy enough. I really? feel like that, that's sort of the vibe they're going for. That they're trying to sort of whisk us along on this light adventure. Yeah. And I feel like um, it feels a little too manufactured, like a little too clunky mm. to have the the spirit they're really going for. Well, I think we're talking about different things. I think mm. you're talking about uh, sort of conventionality, whereas I'm talking about tone. Oh. And I think that's the thing. I was watching this, and I was like, this is the flip swashbuckly tone that I think Marvel has been trying to create and replicate over and over and over again. Okay. Uh, And to only recently diminishing success. They just understood that this is a tone people enjoy. This is good. Pay your money, watch some fun visual effects stuff and see fun, amusing actors do fun, amusing things. Mm. But in order for us to accept that and actually care about it, you need to actually care about introducing the audience to these characters and their world to the extent that we actually do feel for them. There's a bit in this movie where uh, Michelle Rodriguez's character, uh, we find out uh, she's divorced and we get to meet the guy she had married. But, and uh, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, don't spoil the cameo. No, no, it's a fun cameo. It's like, like it's, a, a notable actor. There's, plays, there's, plays there's a couple of fun yeah. bits in here. I'm not going to ruin it, but... Just it's just a scene with her and the guy she married, and then eventually we we meet like the person he's he, dating he, he, now. That he remarried, yeah. yeah like, and and it's and it's like you know what? That's actually they they mean that. Mm. That could have been just a joke. This was actually just like yeah, it's actually kind of hard for her. Is it the mm. end of the world? No, it's actually it's actually relatively healthy, uh-huh. but it's sad. Yeah. And so we actually do There's care a little, little about bit her. of melancholy in that scene. We can care about the characters in this movie. And so even though I would argue I would argue that tonally it may be too breezy because I don't really care if I ever see these characters again. Uh-huh. Like I like them fine. I enjoyed watching their adventure, but I'm good. Um 
yeah, I, I think uh, I, I think it captured the kind of escapist kind of blockbuster genre tone that people glom onto. I think mm-hmm. this is there's a reason I think this is doing pretty well. Uh, I think people are going to enjoy it. I think this is going to do gangbusters when it comes out on home video because it's just something you can put on, it's, enjoy. It's, yeah, it's got you don't a good, have to worry uh, about the kids seeing it. It's got a good slumber party vibe too. Good uh, yeah. slumber party vibe. I would have really liked this movie when I was a kid. I, I like it just fine now. I just think it, 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 there's something about it that's holding it back from being great. And I think it is so comfortable just telling this like sort of er example of like a baseline Dungeons and Dragons story uh-huh. that they don't do enough with the Dungeons and Dragons concept. And I don't even think they really do enough with the characters to make it feel like we've really been through something like, Oh, we've really, okay. we've really done something today. We've really uh-huh. like, i saw Dungeons and Dragons in a theater and it was perfectly entertaining as opposed to, I saw Dungeons and Dragons in a theater and it was fucking awesome. And I have <laughs> to tell all of my friends and we're totally going to go again because I have to go on this journey twice. Yeah. I, I, I'm kind of glad that they went for that kind of affability other than, awesome because you know making a film too cool can take away from a lot of its character i don't mean cool uh, in that sort of you know sort uh, of manufactured i don't mean like a Duke Nukem kind of badass yeah. i just mean like you went on like a really powerful journey mm-hmm. like star wars takes you on a powerful journey okay. you, you, the lord of the rings movies arguably take you on a powerful journey where it just feels like this was a huge labor of love this was a story people really wanted to tell. They had a point they wanted to make. They had real heavy stakes involved uh, in, in every facet of it. And this just doesn't feel like that. This feels know. like a fun matinee film. But it's a really fun matinee film. And I do enjoy it. Mm. All right. Last thoughts? No, Moving it's. I, 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 I wish it were stronger. I wish it yeah. had those qualities. I didn't feel those qualities. Yeah. Uh, it, it felt a little bit too, a little bit too plain and a little bit too manufactured. Hmm. Um, that said, I did like the cast. I did like some of the bits. Um, I, I think, and you know, it's an A production. It's got you know really good um, s- slick set pieces that are actually pretty entertaining to watch. There was a cute reference that I appreciated. Oh, yeah. um, uh, in our talk of Dungeons and Dragons, we didn't mention. Uh, the animated series from 1986. Oh yeah, uh, there was a D and D animated series uh, where a bunch of kids in the modern day mm-hmm. went on like a haunted theme park ride, and it's it so weird. and it transported them into the world of Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. And there was this, uh, this pretty common trope. This little Yoda looking show. guy who was there, yeah. like he was the dungeon master, and he sort of gave them their quests. But when they appeared there, they were in their characters. Yeah. So they were wearing outfits, and they each held like one magical item that was, it, and they each had a thing. It's a motif that I think the Jumanji movies recently have done very very well in movies, mm-hmm. but that was like a pretty baseline thing in a lot of animated shows. Captain N and the end squad was about yeah, yeah. a kid who Cap- played Captain Nintendo. N, the game master is called. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he yeah. he was uh, he played Nintendo and then he got sucked into a Nintendo. And he got to meet all the Nintendo characters and become yeah. a hero in that realm. But, but he had a controller and a zapper, so yeah. he could like he could use those. He could like the pause the yeah. world with the uh, with his controller belt. Mm. I wanted a, con- a Nintendo controller belt so bad. I, I went as Captain N once for Halloween because nice. um, so, I still had my old zapper and I put a put one on my belt. There's another example. Um, oh, uh, kind of. Uh, did you ever? See 
see uh, King Arthur and the Knights of Justice. I didn't see that one. Oh yeah, so the idea is, uh, and back in the day, in the old uh, in the old timey days, Morgan Le Fay has successfully uh, transformed all of the all of King Arthur and his knights into like stone or whatever. Mm-hmm. And Merlin is like, oh no, I need a King Arthur and a whole bunch of knights. Oh, if only there was some point in history where there was a King Arthur and a whole bunch of knights. Fortunately, we found a high school football team where the quarterback's name is Arthur King, and the team is called uh, the Knights, and I'm just going to abduct them from their bus. Sounds good. All right. And so they all fine. come back in time, and now they have to be King <laughs> Arthur, and they've all got cool robot suits, which mm. I'm like, I don't know why we needed that. I feel like that's putting a hat on a hat, but okay. But yeah, just getting abducted from the real so, world and put into a realm of fantasy uh, was, um, was the norm. There was a, a sequence in this new movie where uh, various teams of people had to work their way through the maze. Yeah. And the costumes on one of those people were the characters from the animated series. That's fun. So, yeah, if you knew that animated series, there's at least a little nod. You don't need to know it. It's yeah. just a cute little reference. Yeah. Uh, that's the way you do it. That's, just, that's some, exactly. Some, for the it's 1%, not percent, for the people who know what it is, you're it's not, a neat, neat little wow it's moment. It's not obtrusive. You're not, if you don't you're know not what it is, it's not to going to it affect saying, anything. Get it, yeah. everybody. Uh-huh. You know, and like rolling their eyes at the camera. Here we go again. Mm. Like, nope, just it's there. Mm. It's there. It's fun. I mean, Marvel got a lot of traction with that kind of shit all yeah. the time. It's like, oh, and we have to go to what's this country? Wakanda. And the camera zooms yeah. in and kind of winks a little bit. But Marvel, every time they did that, that was a promise that eventually we'd do something real with it. And yeah. here it's just, yeah, we, we recreated the costumes. Yeah. It was fun. And- Tell me about John Wick Chapter 4, because unfortunately okay. I didn't get to see it. It's three hours long. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a lot it's, of it. Yeah. that That's that, a lot of it about. <laughs> and that's um, it's kind of kind of the main thing you got to think about when you're going into John Wick Chapter 4 is there's a lot of it. Mm. Um, the original John Wick, uh, made by a filmmaker named uh, Chad Stahelski, and um, I forgot who co-directed the first one. Oh, yeah, um, the first one I had co-directed, um, didn't I? Yeah, hang on, I'll look it up. Uh, Deutsch... Oh, I, I, just let me look it up. Okay. Um, I swear to it, God. Uh, it really got, took people by surprise. This John Wick is kind of this middling uh, action picture mm. with uh, Keanu Reeves and... Uh, David Leach. David Leach. Or possibly Leach. Uh, he would go on to direct like Deadpool 2 and okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, a whole bunch of other... Uh, uh, he, yeah. Co-directed the first one. He did Hobbs um, and Shaw. He did Atomic Blonde. Uh, Atomic really Blonde, which was very John Wick-ish. Um, yeah. And the idea with John Wick, uh, the reason why... train. That was the most recent. Deal. The reason why it was so appealing was uh, how how lean it was. Oh, yeah. Uh, very simple premise. Um, morning widower receives a, a pet dog from his dead wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, Saying, you need has, something to love. You need something, something to, to love. love you. Uh, Russian, he runs afoul of some Russian gangsters. The Russian gangsters kill his dog. And, yeah. and uh, as steal it, his car. And steal his car. And as it turns out, he used to be, in a previous life, the world's deadliest assassin. Uh-huh. So he goes after the Russian gangsters. And it that's just, it. It's just basically, you just fucked with the wrong uh, guy. And I love it when the, as, soon as, as soon as everyone's like, you know, oh, what did we do? It's like, oh, that was John Wick's dog. Everyone, like, just stops what they're doing. <gasps> Not John Wick. Like, and, oh, uh, we are in so much goddamn trouble. I have never met you. Uh, <laughs> we are, you are dead to me. There, I, I am not scared of, of the entire Russian mafia the way I am scared of John Wick. And you know what? It really works, that movie. It really works because of its simplicity. Yeah. And uh, the the one uh, odd wrinkle, which is just kind of fun in the first one, yeah. was that John Wick checked into a hotel called The Continental. Yeah. And The Continental Hotel was The Assassin Hotel. Yeah. It's where the assassins go to uh, not just sort of hang out and live in this sort of rich environment, but 
there's also like armors. Uh, they yeah. can buy a suit of armor. They can buy guns there. And yeah, then, and it's and it's like holy like ground in Highlander. It's like and, yeah, no one right, is allowed right. to fight there. So even if you you can have a meeting with your greatest enemy, but everyone agrees mm. the Continental is neutral ground. Yeah, and that, you're and not that was, allowed to do anything. There. And that, that was like fun, kind of a tantalizing idea. Yeah. And so, we, so there's a bit of a world out there. And we could have left it there. We um, really could have. Uh, this is now the fourth film, and over the course of parts two, three, and four, the mythology has gotten so fucking complicated uh-huh. that the movies have had to stop for great great swaths to explain what the hell is going on, mm. and you don't know what the hell is going on. No. There was a scene in John Wick Chapter 3 where I think they went back in time. <laughs> they scene- get on horses, and they go out oh, into God. the desert and meet who I think is supposed to be the world's first assassin, like from thousands of years ago. Or maybe not. Maybe it's some sort of weird spiritual. I don't, I don't think it's that at all. I think it's not. The fact, that's the, the, fact the vibe that, of it. The fact that that seems like a legit possibility uh-huh. tells you just how far this series has gone. Even by chapter three, mm-hmm. from the very straightforward original, the second one, even because the first one, it's like okay, so he kills everybody who fucked him over, and at the end, he gets a new dog. Great. Pretty complete, actually. We've told the whole story. And so there was no cliffhanger to work with. So the next one begins with some guy just saying, Hey, John Wick, I, I need you to do a thing. Oh, okay. So we're just we're just doing this? Like, yeah, I got a thing that says you have to do it. Yeah. And it's like, oh, oh okay. So okay. we're just doing this whole other thing. Yeah. And then it ends, that movie ends with John Wick being the most wanted man in the hitman world mm-hmm. and every hitman in the world is coming after him and every person in the world is a hitman. Yeah, so, it's, it's gotten a little absurd at this point. But the opening of John Wick chapter three, the first act of that movie. <laughs> Which is just, it's essentially just a giant chase slash action sequence. I put it right alongside classics like Mad mm-hmm. Max Fury Road or Walter Hill's The Warriors as just one of the greatest action movies of all time. <laughs> the movie keeps going afterwards and some of it's cool, but it completely loses um, all focus. And it's just like, oh yeah, in order to get this hit off of me, I have to walk wander through the dentist uh, the dentist the, d- the dentist could have been the, the dentist, d- why the, not? Wander through the desert for like 10 hours in this direction with no water and when I when I whenever wherever I collapse there will the original assassin be or the head of the assassins guild or whatever mm-hmm. and I'm like no yeah, don't the, do that don't the, do that the, the assassins guild they call it the high table and um don't care and, and you made John it Wick, so elaborate I don't care anymore. John Wick chapter 4 is just bogged down in that crap okay. um, uh, Alexander Skarsgård plays the head of the high table as, as this little Alexander twerp. or, or, or uh, the other one Oh, um, is it is it the guy well, from it? The guy who played Pennywise the clown. That's uh, uh, Bill Skarsgård. Bill Skarsgård. Excuse me, not yeah, Alexander. Yeah. Just just checking. Bill okay. Skarsgård. Excuse me. Yeah. My my apologies. Yeah. Oh yeah, he, he plays this twerpy guy who's like head of the high table and he's really really rich and he has it in for john wick uh because he's an idiot yeah uh, <laughs> why would you have it in for john wick for god's and, uh, sake just make nice with him get him a and, new dog and john, john wick is on the run and he has to go all around yeah. the world and befriend all these uh, assassins he goes to the continental hotel in osaka uh-huh. and, has, and there's a big fight in osaka um there's another assassin character who's 
out to kill John Wick because he has such a high bounty on his head. Yeah. And his character is named simply Mr. Nobody, which mm. is also the name of Kurt Russell's character from the Fast and Furious movies. Oh, it's all coming um, together. Who plays Mr. Nobody? Uh, Mr. Nobody. Let me look up the actor's name because I forgot what it was. Mm. Uh, it is... You can do it. Uh, Shamir Anderson is his name. Okay. And uh, his deal is he's like not the classy assassin. He wears like a knit cap and a jean jacket and a backpack. Yeah. And he has a dog. Oh, that's nice. That, that's, so uh, they'll be friends. That's been trained to sick balls. Uh, it's, okay. It just, he trained it to attack certain parts of people's anatomy. I get it. Um, I didn't think you meant tennis balls. No. I know no, John like, like he, he <laughs> Testicle biting dog. Yeah. And there's a really long action sequence and a lot of fighting and it's all very impressive. Uh, Keanu Reeves is in his late 50s. Mm-hmm. You can see him struggling. Yeah. And, and I not, would imagine. And not a, but in, in the sa- at the same time, there's, uh, like, he, he's just increasingly indestructible. Like, there's only so many times he can fall off of a, a balcony, land on an abutment, fall another floor down to the floor, and just sort of get up and keep I've fighting. I've seen him get hit by, like, two cars in a row in a John Wick movie and yeah. walk it off. And, you know, if, if there was a sequence later on where he's like, oh, gosh, that really hurt me, and I can only do this yeah. from now on, that like, he actually sustained injuries. He doesn't. He just sort of keeps going. Uh, in order to uh, join a Russian mob family so he can get back in with etc. 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 He has to do battle with a Russian gangster in a nightclub and that sequence goes on and on and on. Uh, he ends up having to uh, challenge the villain to a duel. Also, Donnie Yen is there. Yay! Uh, Donnie Yen, who's essentially Zatoichi in this movie. Well, he was so, essentially Zatoichi in Rogue One as well. Yeah, he's, he plays the same kind of the same character, a blind mm. warrior. Um, yeah. There's a fun sequence with the Donnie Yen character. Uh, his name is Kane, because they're all fucking named Kane. Uh, <laughs> Seriously, start making a note of how many characters are named Kane in action movies, yeah. and, and the list will never end. Uh, but uh, he uh, is a very efficient fighter, and he's able to track where people are in the room by pasting like motion sense and sensor doorbells around the room. Okay. So when somebody walks past one, the doorbell goes off, and he can attack them. So that's okay. kind of a fun yeah, sequence. It's cool to put some thought into it, yeah. Uh, and... By the time we get to the end, we've set up where the duel is going to be. But before we can get there, and I'm this is not an exaggeration, okay. 37 straight minutes of action sequences. No, it's there like are three climaxes in a row. There are two kinds of people, mm. I feel, listening to a podcast like this yeah. uh, who will hear the words 37 minutes of action sequence mm. at the end of John Wick Chapter 4. And I think a lot of people uh-huh. are going to hear, oh my God, that sounds awesome. Mm. And I think also a lot of people are going to go, that I'm, sounds so tiresome. I'm, I'm, I'm already exhausted. That sounds, that sounds kind of monotonous. Then they're going to get monotonous after a while? Do they manage to modulate well, it as such so that that doesn't feel tiring? There's three separate sequences within that climax. Mm-hmm. There's uh, essentially a, like a game of Frogger where they're going like hopping through traffic going around the Arc de Triomphe because it okay. takes place in Paris. That's fine. Um, there's a sequence in like an abandoned house. And you can tell they did this to sort of spare the stunt people because it's shot from head uh, top down. Okay. Uh, sort of like that sequence in Malignant where they're kind of following through the house and we just sort of see everything and the, like the roof is missing. Oh, okay. I was thinking and, uh, of the scene in Minority Report where we're following the oh, robots. That, yeah, or yeah. like that sequence. Yeah. Like that, that's a really cool sequence too. I like that sequence. Yeah. Uh, this one, he's got like a, a flamethrower shotgun kind of weapon. He's just sort of blasting people away. But they're also tiny. They look like video game characters. So I, that one's not so interesting. kind of fun. And then Any there's uh, the best part of the sequence where he has to fight his way up uh 222 steps. He has to just go up this big outdoor staircase. Okay. And that's a pretty cool sequence. That sounds fun. Uh, but it comes at the end of like 
two hours and 45 minutes. Yeah. It's like, you're starting me at that point. It's like, I want to go home. Yeah. I want to, want to use the bathroom. You can probably just take a break at that point, go out, use the bathroom, get some snacks, come back and you'll be back in time for the climax, the like actual climax of the movie. I mean, there's too much of it is my point. Uh, it it's it's exhausting and bloated in a way that the first John Wick was trying to be the antidote for. Yeah. Uh, it, the first John Wick is exciting because it dispenses with all of like the well, bloat of Hollywood. It feels like we're watching a work print. Well, it feels, it feels like, like they they didn't want to leave anything. Here's out. the thing I think is interesting about John Wick uh, in some regards is mm-hmm. that John Wick, the original John Wick, in its construct, was actually a bit of a throwback. To action movies of like the 70s where you'd see films like, I don't know, The Mechanic starring Charles Bronson. Capable, revenge-based kind of thrillers. But what they were was they were character-driven. The Mechanic actually doesn't have that much action in it. It's an action movie, but it's all about building up to the action. And if you look at a lot of the movies that we consider like the best action movies of that era, it's not wall-to-wall fights and car chases no in fact shit. the action is pretty trim in a lot of those older movies. even james bond movies a lot of them are travel logs punctuated with big set pieces um when i was a kid i would watch a movie like that and i would say to myself man this is kind of cool but i wish there was more action wall-to-wall action just give it to my like halloween candy sugar addled brain and I liked that kind of stuff when I was younger a lot more than I like it now. There's still some movies that manage to make it work. And a lot of it is about pacing and modulation. And that can be very, very tricky. And very few films weave that, uh, uh, navigate that fine line. Um, but a lot of the times now when I'm watching wall-to-wall action movies, I mm. find myself really missing the 1970s approach. The older I get... Well, the, the less interested yeah. I am, if, for example, uh, a film like like the Raid movies, oh, awesome I, I, action I, I, of the Raid. I didn't see the first one, but that yeah. that second that's another really exhausting yeah. movie. It's like it's just, so fucking just when you're ready to go home, it's like no, now we're gonna start the 45 minute climax. Yeah, I, I think thing. the first one outstays its welcome a little bit, but that second one, every action sequence in that movie is fucking phenomenal. But there's so many of them, and they're only bolstered by weirdly labyrinthine plot that I don't really care what's going on after a while. And I can only watch people do kick-ass things kind of in a mental vacuum without me being genuinely engaged by the story and characters mm. for so long before I'm bored. This is like, uh, uh, you know, you're watching a musical and we're here for the musical numbers, right? Yeah, but if like half the musical numbers are... 20 minutes long and you're not 100% sure what this musical number is even accomplishing anymore most of the mm. time. Yeah. I, I, empty spectacle only gets me so far. Yeah. I yeah, appreciate spectacle. I enjoy spectacle. And there's something I mean, to the, be said for that, but it's yeah, not the, really for me after a while. The, the spectacle is first rate, but yeah, that's... that's if that's all you have and you're trying to give me a lot of it, you know, it's like, yeah. I, I need, I need cake under the frosting, you know, just, yeah. just, just feed me all of this, uh, all this yeah. blithering, um, which is a weird word to use, uh, when describing something as terse as the John Wick movies. Yeah. And, and there's some exciting character actors in it. Lance Reddick is in it. I think it's yeah. his last movie. Um, um yeah. Great actor, and, Lance Reddick. If you never saw the wire, please see the wire. He's amazing. I never saw the wire, but I did see the resident evil TV series where he played like four or five different characters. He's having so much fun. In that yeah. Series. He's playing like clones of himself. He's really, it's not a great series, uh, but he's having a blast. Yeah. It, like I'm, I, I've only seen Lance Reddick in a few things and he tends to play like 
pretty stern characters. Uh, yeah, he's he very, has, he very had, good at playing serious kind of yeah. imposing figures. But he can and, be um, very funny. And yeah, yeah. In, in Resident Evil, he plays like these kind of weird, like weirdo characters, which you know I think he do, does that pretty well. Yeah. Um, uh, Ian McShane is is always he's a back, is always yeah. a pleasure. Um, yeah. Oh, Donnie Yen is is you know Donnie Yen. Oh, great. Um, I love Donnie Yen. All, all, all of the each individual elements are fine, but I feel like we got John Wick Chapter 4 and 5 at the same time, and yeah, I was just I was tired by the end. I just wanted it to go, wanted to go home. All right, well, let's move on, and let's talk about a film uh, based on one of the most popular video games in history, but it's not an adaptation of the game, because the game is an abstraction, hmm. but the history of the game is actually kind of neat. Uh, this is called Tetris. And it is based off of the game that most people know because it came packaged with a Game Boy, mm. which is one of the best-selling game systems of all time. It was one of the wow. first uh, uh, handheld systems that you could put different cartridges in. Uh, I had a Game Boy. That was my first game system when I was growing up. Uh, I played Tetris endlessly. Well, and, and what Nintendo wisely did, and they, they kind of skimmed past this in the movie, uh, uh, was... They didn't want it to be in color, and they couldn't have a backlight because that would take too much battery power. Yeah, you'd have to fill it up with like eight to six, yeah. eight to ten batteries. So to there's do certain that. limitations. So, to the so game they board, wanted, yeah. to, you know, what four AA batteries is what we're going to commit to. So it was a black and white monitor, eight bit yeah. graphics, and uh, that made it a lot more popular than some of its competition. Yeah, like the Sega Game Gear or the Atari Lynx. Uh, those Which, were too too big and too expensive, and they couldn't hold a charge. Yeah. And oh I, no. Oh yeah. They, like, they like, sucked up batteries. Those. Things. Oh yeah. Couldn't couldn't get um, me through a four-hour car trip with a Game Gear. Mm. Like, they just they just stopped playing it after yeah, a while. Get, Game Boy lasted a while. Yeah. Uh, it, was a, it, was a hunky, it was a hunky machine. It was a brick. It was, well, oh, it was, it was, well, it was well designed. It was yeah. aesthetically pleasing. It was a good... And, and, you know, here's something that I really like about the Tetris movie. This is all about the creation of Tetris, the video game, which was actually well, created in Russia during, you know, the, the height of the USSR, or rather the waning years of the USSR. Um, and how difficult it was to get the game rights out of a communist country where the game, even though it was created, it was technically created by one guy, but because he lived in Russia, it belonged to the country. And as a result, a seemingly banal, kind of benign little video game about falling blocks Mm. ended up becoming a a weirdly politicized thing. And even the creation of it, this is a guy who was supposed to be doing real work, even that was kind of a weird act of political revolution because instead he made a, a game for people to enjoy. Yeah, uh, well, he, he he made a game uh, and uh, his name was. Uh, let me look up the the actual creator. Of, oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah, of Tetris. Alexei uh, Pajitnov is his name. Yeah, Alexei Pajitnov made this game. Uh, and uh, the from what I understand, the original version of it it was done in just uh, using typing characters. Yeah, it wasn't animated yet. Uh, yeah. But he made this thing, and the idea was these blocks that are made up of four squares, so it sort of sort of fall. You mm. can sort of link them up together. One would look like a box. One would look like a line. The, the other sc- one would look like an L. The screen would fill up, and the game would be over. And it yeah. was. I think somebody else suggested, "Hey, how about when you create a line across the whole board, it vanishes, and so you can kind yeah. of keep on playing indefinitely if you're yeah. good enough." Uh, and that became uh, so popular in the Soviet Union mm-hmm. that uh, they had to put blockers on computers from people using it because it was too addictive. Yeah. Like people were not as productive as they could have been. And if you've never played uh, Tetris, it, it's a brilliantly simple game. Yeah. It, yeah. it is incredibly satisfying. Like, it, it takes effort 
and and a little bit of skill because you so can't it's just all a sort of pattern recognition. It's and pattern recognition, together, and the longer yeah. you play, the more it speeds up, so it gets a little bit more difficult over time. Uh, that classic arcade thing where you just yeah. play until you lose. Um, yeah, so great. Uh, yeah, uh, the creation of Tetris and its proliferation throughout the Soviet Union. And uh, the story of its creator and how the game was taken away from him and was mm. owned by the, the Soviet state at a time when the Soviet state was actually in definite decline. Mm-hmm. And uh, how there might be a little bit of controversy as to whether or not it's uh, now wise or kosher to engage in a capitalist endeavor and yeah. sell the game in order to earn money for this communist ideal. Yeah. Uh, all of that is glossed over pr- uh, prior to the prologue of the movie. And instead, we focus on this other character. Mm, character's uh, name is Hank Rogers. Hank Rogers. Uh, played by Taron Edgerton mm, from uh, Rocket Man and the Kingsman movies. His, uh, Hank Rogers was Dutch. He spent most of his time in America and lived in Japan. Uh, uh, and Hank Rogers was, was, was Dutch, but he was also not a white guy. Mm. Which is something I think is really noteworthy here. Is that they actually had a character who was um, not a white guy, and he was the center <laughs> of your story, and you went out of your way to cast Taron Edgerton, who is okay, but uh, also that that you why why did you do this? My issue with Tetris is uh, Hank Rogers as the main character, uh-huh. and he's not very interesting. That's not the interesting part of this story. No. We're focusing a lot. Uh, this movie Tetris is about how Hank Rogers. Uh, finds Tetris at, like, a Games Bazaar in Las Mm. Vegas, this big sort of trade show, and decides this is uh, something that's going to make us a lot of money. We need to purchase the rights and uh, distribute it among Mm. video game distributors, Atari or Nintendo. It turns out Nintendo was was the ones who ended up biting. Um, But there was a little bit of controversy because there was nobody was sure who got the rights to which platforms mm-hmm. to put Tetris on. Some people got the arcade cabinet rights. Some people got the home video rights. Some people got the PC rights. And then the Game Boy was not. It hadn't quite yeah. been released so yet. So no one was even talking about the handheld rights. Yeah, and so, meanwhile, uh, there's also rights in different countries. Mm. So Hank Rogers was able to get the rights to like some of the rights in Japan, which is a huge market for video games. Mm. And... A bigger company called, I think it was Mirasoft. Yeah. Uh, they had acquired most of the other rights. Problem is, they kind of didn't. You, you can't really just get the rights from the Soviet Union. So. Yeah. So, so uh, actually, very quickly, yeah. they realized the rights to all of Tetris is kind of up for grabs. Yeah. And, and the only thing that they can do is go to the Soviet Union on a tourist visa because it takes a long time to get a business visa at that time, mm-hmm. which means that if you do any business while you're there, you will be arrested. You go on a tourist visa, you go do a whole bunch of business with people working for the government, mm-hmm. hoping they won't arrest you, <laughs> hoping you say something clever enough that you can outmaneuver these like two other business entities that are vying for the rights. And you're also trying not to get arrested by the Soviet. So it's basically, it's a big corporate problem-solving movie 
it's, much along yeah, the lines uh, of something like margin call or social network and that kind of like we have to like how do we outmaneuver I legally was, was and financially of, um, our opponents what's it called uh, Dark Water the, yeah. the one with Mark Ruffalo that's more uh, of a legal movie but yeah exactly it's all about uh, the, the legal machinations but, yeah, but it's also tinged with this Cold War spy yeah. aesthetic and tone uh, I'm I do like finding out the details and the minutia and the stories of the mundane uh-huh. uh, Tetris is a very bare bones kind of a game. It's not mm-hmm. trying to tell a story. It's not you know tr- shaking up the zeitgeist in anything other than it's a fun thing to play. At least not in uh, its actual gameplay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, uh, sort of wrestling with the rights and figuring out that it was actually owned by the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting story, and. Mm-hmm. If you're going to tell that story, I think you need to tell it from Alexei Pajitnov's perspective. Probably, yeah. Uh, he invented this game. The government took it away from him. The Taron Edgerton character needs to come in like partway through the second act saying, hey, mm-hmm. there's people outside the country interested in what you're doing. And it's sort of like potential salvation for that right. character. Um, no, it's very telling that we have a story they, about like a really fascinating Russian character mm-hmm. and we have to find a way to get a character who isn't even American and Americanize the shit out of them so that we can, him feels and, like we have an American protagonist. Well, and also uh, make it more about sort of the, the triumph of the corporate entity mm-hmm. rather than the inventor or the programmer. God, I hope uh, Nintendo gets this game. Yeah, it's like... And, and of course... The only reason we would be rooting for it in the audience is because we know what Tetris is. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we know and, we know it gets out. We know Nintendo I, releases it. I feel it, like so. uh, the filmmakers are trying as best they can in a social network kind of way to fling style all over this story mm-hmm. when really it's really fucking boring. <laughs> I This movie's over two hours long and I don't care like who's uh. who's wrestling over the handheld rights. You know, after oh, like the, the fifth that. meeting that they've had with this guy. I got totally swept up in all of that. Uh, th- they're not getting a lot of the aesthetics right. I went to Russia in 1991, right uh-huh. after the coup. <laughs> I know what it looks like, and it sure. didn't quite look like that. Oh, I'm not, I have no doubt whatsoever yeah. that there's historical accuracy problems mm. up and down. <laughs> because, again, at the, just at the top to, bottom, you got a guy, I looked it up, he's, he's, he's part Indonesian. Mm. Hank Rogers, and he and he does not look like a white guy. If you look at any picture of Hank Rogers, yeah. you wouldn't see Taron Edgerton in any casting call for him. <laughs> it's just they they clearly made changes to make it more of a movie. I think some of them are cleverer than others. I think I have a real fondness for these kinds of really wordy, labyrinthine, hmm. like. Cold War spy like John le Carré kind of thing, like Tinker Tailor yeah. Soldier spy kind of movies. So I'm already like really forgiving. You're telling me we're gonna spend a lot of this movie in boardrooms while a bunch of really severe guys argue over the minutia of contracts, and if they don't do it right, someone might get shot in the head. Sold. <laughs> that sounds great to me. I'm totally down for that, and I actually think you know what's really at the core of this movie, and I and I think I appreciate that. Uh, Hank Rogers is depicted in this movie uh, is a character who he's not just a businessman. He's actually a really shitty businessman. He cares about video games and he cares about them as an art form. Indeed, when he's actually trying to communicate with other people and try to share ideas, the iconography he keeps coming back to the way that we might recognize, like I will reference a character in Shakespeare in order Mm -hmm. to bring up a a point. He'll, he'll, 
reference Super Mario. Hmm. He cares about video games as an art form. As someone who cares about video games as an art form, a movie oh, that oh, kind of does. Too. I Hold didn't on. get that. From I you. did. So, so give me a all second. Right, all right. He cares about it as an art form, and I think the movie cares about it as an art form, and I think it's an interesting movie about how art is fundamentally political, hmm. even if it seems kind of flighty, and how the creation of any work of art can have these really big sweeping consequences and ripple effects. And here's a creation of a guy created a video game at work. Mm-hmm. And it ended up being this huge fucking ordeal that involved the mm-hmm. Russian government. I found that really fascinating. I found that really... Um, honestly, I, I appreciated that this was directed by John S. Baird, who directed one of my favorite biopics, Stan and Ollie, which is about Laurel and Hardy. Oh. Um, I think he did a pretty good job of making it feel kind of like a Cold War spy film while never actually being a Cold War proper spy film mm. i think he overplays that hand a few times there's a bit towards the end of the movie where in order to they you know we, we've done what we need to do but now we need to get out of the country and it's kind of like the end of argo there's like a car chase and can yeah. we get on a plane in time and which i'm pretty sure didn't happen I i'm pretty try, sure probably to juice it up a that feels bit. pretty artificially inflated and you and it really feels artificial because like a big pop song comes on the soundtrack and there's mm. this whole thing where as they're like speeding through the streets of Moscow or whatever the hell city they're in, like whenever like the car hits something, it like turns into an 8-bit car. Uh-huh. And I'm like, they did this cute thing where a lot of their like establishing shots look like what Nintendo would make an establishing shot of that look like in the 80s. You know, like yeah. through 8-bit graphics. Yeah. I thought that was pixelated, cute. Pixelated it was cute. It, it wasn't very obtrusive. Here it's getting obtrusive. And it just mm. feels like... A joke now. Like I'm, I'm not watching an adaptation of a game about Tetris. I'm watching oh. the real story behind Tetris, and you're really overselling it yeah. at that point. And I thought it was really starting to like. It felt like the movie was losing confidence, mm. and it was like desperately trying to put some stuff in here so that the trailer can look more action packed than it actually is. But no, I, I mostly like. I think Taron Edgerton is wildly miscast. I think the protagonist is at the very least way too fucking drab. Mm. Um, but I really enjoyed it actually and i actually thought they did a pretty good job of taking what probably by all rights should have been like a really long oral history in vulture.com or something Mm. and turning it into a movie i i would have preferred a documentary (laughs) film about this because i think the the true story is going to be a lot more interesting probably than the way they staged it here uh again you need to focus on Alexei Pajitnov. Uh, yes. af- in 1996, mm-hmm. he and Hank Rogers created something called the Tetris Group. He got out of Russia. He did. Uh, and he was able to sort of found this company and he started get- getting royalties for the first time in 1996. Yeah. It's like, you know, eight years after, you know, mm-hmm. Tetris had become the worldwide hit that it was. Yeah. And uh, he also, like, developed other interesting kind of sort of puzzle games after a while because that, yeah. that sort of became a stock and trade. Yeah. Um, None as big as Tetris. No, but yeah, he did make uh, a version of Tetris which was 3D. Tetrisphere. Not Tetrisphere. I liked um, Tetrisphere. It, it was, was uh, a version of Tetris where you s- the blocks fell away from you, oh. like, sort of down this column, and you sort oh. of fit them in this like 3D space. That's kind of cool. Um, and uh, I-, I saw versions of that in like arcades, but yeah. it never really took off. I think it was a little too cerebral for some people. Maybe because again, that's the that's the beauty of Tetris is its simplicity. Yeah, you it, can add complexity to it, and that'll amuse people who like Tetris. But 
the whole idea that Hank Rogers is trying to do is like, listen, you've got this thing. It's called the Game Boy. You were going to package it with Super Mario Land, and a lot of kids will buy Super Mario Land. If you package it with Tetris, a game that even adults will enjoy, hmm. you'll sell more Game Boys. That's right. Yeah. But there's something weird about that because towards the end of the movie, Nintendo is like busting their ass and like, you know, representatives from Nintendo are like risking their lives to get the rights to Tetris. And all I can think is. At this point, I just put out Super Mario Land. Yeah, <laughs> you have it <laughs> in your back like pocket. That, yeah. Like it's gonna do really well. I don't. We don't really need. Mm-hmm. You don't need Tetris. Mm-hmm. You're fine. <laughs> You'll do even better with Tetris. But the people who need Tetris aren't Nintendo at that point. Yeah. And so it's. They, I feel like they kind of shoving Nintendo into the climax when Nintendo probably shouldn't have been there. <laughs> it didn't really make sense. Yeah. Uh, this is something that uh, somebody else pointed out to me, but um, mm. there's like a montage of like the big video games of 1988. So uh, they show yeah. uh, Legend of Zelda and they sure. show Super Mario Brothers. And there's a clip of Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. Oh yeah, which they um, reference in the movie. They reference in the movie. And uh, you say he cares about video games and his line of dialogue is, we need to team up. That's why Mario has Luigi. You took turns. Mm-hmm. That's why Zelda, ha- that's why L- Zelda had Link. Link was the hero. Zelda was not a playable character. The point is that they form a dramatic said, diet. And then he said, and it's whoever Mike Tyson is punching and Mike Tyson's punch out. The character was named Little Mac. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, that, that's easy to look up. The clip of Mike Tyson's punch out was from a Game Grumps uh, uh, play along video. Oh, really? That's yeah, hilarious. Because they they actually like left the the Game Grumps mat mm. in the movie, and so I think I don't think they asked the Game Grumps permission. So, mm. got in uh, however much hot water you can get in for that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, no, this this has a little bit of a uh, that sort of self important. Apparently, error Little Mac isn't like, actually named in the game. They, they call him Mac repeatedly in in Punch Out. Yeah. And, it, re- and, he's called, called little, and he's called Little Mac, like in the instruction booklet and stuff. He had a name from the All start. Right. All right. Uh, but uh, I, the the movie I was reminded of was uh, was the Steve Jobs movie, uh, not that Steve Jobs movie. The other Steve Jobs, the one movie. with Ashton Kutcher. The one with Ash- Ashton Kutcher. That was terrible. That, that, yeah, it is. <laughs> it was really. And this bad. movie's terrible too. Um, oh, I would. The, uh, there's a scene at the beginning of that Steve Jobs movie where he's like, "I've revolutionized everything." Mm. It's called the iPod. And, uh, and, and, you know, and he pulls on an iPod up. So it's like, it can carry all of your music and it's that big. And I don't know why he's drunk in my, my <laughs> I don't, I don't this, know either. This guy, Marcini, and it's really good. Uh, you play music. You want it? It's a thousand bucks. Uh, no, he holds up the iPod and he says that this is the iPod. And mm. everybody in the audience, it's like they all poop their pants simultaneously. They just yeah. leap to their Apparently feet. Apparently that was a pretty cheer. big thing. Yeah, but we didn't know what it was yet. He didn't say, here's how it operates. This is how cool it is. Yeah. Just says, it's called the iPod. Everyone's like, oh, finally. We <laughs> we know what that is because we knew it was you were going to invent it. So we were excited about it. Sure. Yeah. And I, I feel like there's a little bit of presumption going on with something like Tetris. There's we, we understand this is a foregone conclusion with Tetris. There's no actual tension in Tetris. I do appreciate that there are like bits in the movie where like he brings Tetris to Nintendo and the head of Nintendo plays it and just... It's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> like, not, not, he's the one who's most enthused about it. Mm. He's the one who sees how addictive it is. And everyone else is like, 
Yeah, we'll put that on a Nintendo. Uh, That's okay. Like they're no, it's not like everyone is falling over themselves uh, constantly. And I, it's I just think here's the, something uh, that we can make money yeah, off yeah. of. Let's do it. And he's the one who's passionate about it because he appreciates game design. And one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when he's actually with the original designer, and he's like, "Can I can I see the original version?" Yeah, and they like talk about it. And he's like, "Oh, what if we did this?" And they actually like talk about video games as an art form, and I actually really like that bit. Kind of like kept it kind of focused for me. But anyway, we should move on. Clearly, we're very we're, we don't usually differ this much on the movie, and that's kind of fun. Um, the other <laughs> the other movies that uh, came out this week you saw and I didn't tell me right. about Tori and Lokita. Uh, Tori Lokita is this is exciting. This Ooh. is the latest film from the Dardenne brothers, ah. uh, uh, Jean Pierre and Luc Dardenne. Brilliant um, filmmakers. Yeah, they're uh, Belgian filmmakers. They make movies that will make you spit your teeth out in tension. Um, <laughs> but it's an important uh, point. They don't do thrillers. They don't. Well, they don't do thrillers. They do movies uh, essentially about like the harrowing stress of poverty. There's a lot of children in peril in his movies. They're in their movies. They're clearly inspired by Dickens Mm -hmm. where they're trying to look at Belgian society and much like Dickens, Dickens, British society, but they're finding like (laughs) the, the children that are essentially being forced into the cracks that are being discarded, that are being sort of shoved aside. And uh, that was what the kid in the bike is about. Um, They did a film that, will make your hair grow gray um uh called it's called three days um i don't think i saw that one you might uh, uh the one with uh marion cotillard or, or two days one night it's called two days one night yeah. um yeah with marion cotillard and um yeah it's about a woman who's about to lose her job and she has to convince a lot of people to take a pay cut so she can keep her job and it's just about the time she spends doing that yeah going and knocking on people's doors and asking them to take a pay cut and everyone uh, who who she asks has their own reasons for needing the money it's not like they're all rich. Yeah, like they all they all need money too. They're all just working class. Um, yeah, and yeah, uh, just having her going about this and like driving from place to place, and yeah. she actually has like only two days to do it, is is completely harrowing. Tori and Lokita, no different. Okay. Really harrowing. Uh, Tori is a young boy. Uh, Lokita is a, a girl of about sixteen. Okay. Uh, they are. They don't and. They're not brother and sister, but they're pretending to be because that's sort of the only way they're allowed to stay together. Yeah. Um, and they live in a restaurant. Okay. I guess they kind of hang out or hang around a restaurant. And okay. they're able to get odd jobs dealing drugs. That's their option. They go to uh, local restaurants sometimes and they sing. Mm-hmm. They clearly care deeply about each other. And they're constantly trying to check up on each other. Mm. And it's, they know that if they're separated for too long, they become even greater targets than they are now by the authorities or by drug dealers or by bad guys. Uh, they're just, their lives are in constant peril. And partway through the movie, uh, Lokita, looking to make a little extra money, uh, agrees to look after a weed harvest mm. in this illegal uh, greenhouse, like clear across town. And she doesn't know until she gets there that she's expected to essentially be locked in 24 seven and she's not allowed to talk to Tori. And this drives them both completely crazy and things just get worse and worse for them as the film goes on. And Mm. I'm not going to say if it ends well or if it doesn't, uh, because that's the movie it's, it's Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardenne. If you know their works, you kind of see the, the trajectory that these characters are on of whether it's a trajectory of, of, uh, Horror or of redemption. Uh, 
It's a really rough watch. Oh, no. Because it's children in peril. Yeah. Uh, if you are sensitive to movies about children in peril, and I know some people are, maybe don't see this one. Mm. Uh, it's not so miserable as, um, I'm not sure if you saw Lucas Moodyson's Lilia Forever, which is also about a teenage girl no, who uh, sort of is in, in poverty and she uh, is sort of forced into sex work. Uh, and and she just, things get worse and worse for poor Lilia Forever. Um, it's not quite as harrowing as that. It's not reveling in misery. And I think that's something really brilliant that the Dardens do. They're able to present really harrowing, difficult lives while keeping their feet on the ground. They're trying to show that these things are just hard for these people rather than turning their misery into an aesthetic. Mm. Uh, The Dardens actually are very uh, frills-free when it comes to uh, their filmmaking. You might might even compare them to somebody like Mike Lee, who uh, likes to uh, keep his characters in very realist spaces. Uh, so you're watching these characters and you're sort of seeing a lot of their their journey and their, their suffering and how, mm-hmm. how difficult things are in terms of the racism they encounter and the poverty that they're just sort of forced to live with all, at all times and really feel it. Yeah. Rather than uh, sort of distance yourself from it, they they really push you through uh, through the ringer with uh, with Tori and Lokita, and I really loved it. Okay, um, because I like these kinds of stories, uh, and I think it's it's really kind of heady and serious. Um, not a party, <laughs> but not every film's made to make make you feel good. Maybe it? Whitney, I'm just yeah. gonna throw it out there. Maybe it's a depressing party. It's <laughs> still a party. Yeah, well, I'm just saying, you know, like, yeah, yeah we always like, oh, we're going to have a party different. and everyone's going to have a really good time. Well, what if we had a party and the whole point is everyone's going to be as depressed as possible, but in the same room? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'd say still a party. Anyway, uh, tell me <laughs> tell me about The Lost King. Okay. Um, uh, actually, I have a couple notable directors because this is a Stephen Frears joint. Yeah. Uh, you know Stephen Frears. He did everything. <laughs> uh, Stephen Frears is an incredibly prolific filmmaker. Has yeah. made like 40 movies in his career. Yeah. Um, a lot of them you probably have heard of. Something mm-hmm. like The Grifters or the... He did The Queen with Helen Mirren. Yeah, uh, he's... Uh, yeah, Stephen Frears is, is very nimble and he's very utilitarian as a filmmaker. He does know how to add frills. He knows how to do a lot of like style. Mm-hmm. Uh, if but, that's what the story calls for, he actually doesn't really have a signature style, which is interesting about Stephen Frears. Yeah. He doesn't have like this one particular move or, mm-hmm. uh, lighting material. Like yeah, he's, he, he, his movies are very, his movies feel effortless, which mm-hmm. actually usually means there's a ton of effort. Well, I, yeah. I got to interview Stephen Frears once. He made a film called The Program with yeah. Ben Foster. It's about Lance Armstrong and the doping scandal. Yeah. And a uh, very good movie, by the way. And um, he is a frustrating interview because he he's one of those filmmakers who doesn't really see himself as an artist. Mm-hmm. He just sort of uh, sees filmmaking as more of a craft. Yeah. And so when he, I say, you know, how do you decide on your aesthetics? It's like, you just put the camera down and you shoot. You say action, yeah. you say cut. It's really easy. It's like... He's clearly going on like a lot of instincts, and he has very good instincts. Yeah, he's been doing this for so long, he probably doesn't have to articulate it very yeah, well. So, he can just do it. So yeah, he doesn't really care about that kind of thing. Mm. Um, I was just looking up some of his more uh, more prominent movies, because uh, I've seen a lot I of see, He did Philomena. That was Philomena. the film that made... I have not yeah. seen My Beautiful Andre, which I know is a failing. I've heard that's mine. great. I haven't seen that. Uh, and I haven't seen his Dangerous Liaisons, which I know was a big hit back yeah. in the late 80s. But yeah, I did The Grifters. I did... Uh, 
he did a horror movie called Mary Riley, which is the Jekyll and Hyde story. Oh, I forgot he uh, did that. Yeah, that was him. That's hilarious. Uh, he did High Fidelity, which I really love. Yeah. He did Dirty Pretty Things, which is a movie about immigration. That movie's uh, fucking that's a really great. Good movie. That movie's a great um, movie, yeah. Uh, I didn't see Mrs. Henderson Presents. Yeah. Uh, he did a, a film based on a comic book called Tamara Drew. That's a very funny uh, film. Okay. I like that movie a lot. Tamara Drew's great. Uh, he did a, a film about Queen Victoria called Victoria and Abdul. Yeah. Um, his films seem to be getting, uh, when he works in England, because he's, um, he's a hmm. British filmmaker, uh, he gets very British about it. He does a lot of very he's British fil- films. about we- the Queen, mm-hmm. about uh, British views on religion. Uh, mm. Victoria is about a friendship that Queen Victoria had with, uh, with Abdul and yes. uh, how they were very close. And, uh, he was a very trusted advisor and history books sort of wrote him out because he's not a white guy. Yeah. Um, and the lost King is about modern day British nerds who are really into Richard the third, the historical figure, Richard the third, not the Shakespeare play. Uh, Oh, <clears throat> and in fact, this is, a, this is a movie or a documentary. This is a movie. Okay. Uh, Sally Hawkins plays the main character. Okay. Uh, Steve Coogan plays uh, her husband, who she's kind of on the outs with, so they don't have a very good relationship. It's not into Richard III enough for her taste. No. Um, But the problem is, Richard III, the play, William Shakespeare's Richard Mm -hmm. III, has really tainted the pool. Is a a work of propaganda. Yeah. It was made specifically to malign Richard III, and his actual history, as uh, as a result, (coughs) wasn't terribly well known. See and also Macbeth. <laughs> well, the real life not... story. The real life story of Macbeth is very different from the from the. Story well, that, that's that's a highly fictionalized version. It's, it's a very yeah. highly it's not, fictionalized it's not, film. Well, it's not based. It, it's based vaguely on history. It's not a historical. Play. My point is this: when you think when you say the word Macbeth, does anyone remember the actual guy, or are they thinking of the Shakespeare version? What what, what actual guy Macbeth are we basing this on? Because the, the, there's no historical figure named Macbeth. That's a, a Shakespearean figure. Um, don't think that's true, but okay, maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. I, I, maybe I'm wrong. Macbeth, maybe something King about, of Scotland. Yeah, Shakespeare play. <laughs> you no, know, from 1040 to 1057 AD. Oh, okay. Or AD 1040 to 1057. Sorry, yeah, he was the King of Scots. All right, for like 17 years. Okay, I, I didn't think uh, Shakespeare's play was based on that at all, but you know, mm. that, that, that's me being ignorant. Um, no, there's uh, but there's a, a a subset of history nerds in England who were very keen on redeeming Richard III as a historical figure, yeah, and saving his reputation from what, what people thought from Shakespeare, right? Uh, and this was the same organization that not only tried to get a lot of these history books rewritten. Uh, and these myths about Richard III were taught in like modern day history classes. Yeah. Just these things were assumed about Richard III. And, people and don't he, question them after he a killed while, these yeah. people and he was a really horrible villain, and that's just sort of what history says. So Yeah, there's a lot uh, of that. Sally Hawkins starts taking the tour and like listens to lectures and has the temerity to stand up and correct the professor. Uh-huh. It's how dare you get out of here? And there's were, a lot of a monocle popping. Were you ever uh, taught the bullshit like folk tales we've heard about like the founding fathers in school like the whole cherry tree thing like oh absolutely yeah, yeah. that was, all, that was taught myths. to us as fact uh-huh. that one day robert you know george washington cut down his dad's favorite cherry tree you know every dad's favorite cherry tree and he cut it down and dad's like did you cut down this cherry tree and george washington said i cannot tell a lie and that's like 
Well, why? Okay, great. But why? Why'd why, you do it? Yeah, what the hell? Like, the the larger question is, why were you even going to do it if you weren't even gonna like pretend? <laughs> well, what's in it okay. for you, George? And cutting down you a just cherry hate tree. Now. Trees? Now, what if he killed his dad's dog? Yeah, that wouldn't be so romantic, wouldn't? Did you yeah. kill my dog? I cannot tell a lie. I murdered your well, dog. Well, I have so much respect yeah. for you that you then get an you, extra you. portion of mead. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what, what he's getting. What is George Washington doing with mead? I don't know. He's a hearty young lad. Put hair on your chest. <laughs> point is this. My point good, is good this. history there, dude. We were taught. We uh, were taught a bunch of bullshit history because it had just passed into antiquity, yeah, and it was like it was like in the manuscript Liberty Valance. Eventually, just print the legend, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that that's what uh, the Sally Hawkins character, who's not a historian, she just becomes kind of intrigued. Yeah. At one point, and becomes deeply in, uh, intrigued by all of these people she talks to, and they just meet at a local pub and they talk about oh, and all the history books are all wrong, uh, and so she goes on a quest to not just redeem Richard the Third, but find out where he's buried. Oh. It turns out they don't really know where he is. And uh, uh, this, you might actually remember the story when they actually found the bones of Richard the Third a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and his skeleton was just, it was under a parking lot. Yeah. It just paved over where, where King Richard the Third was they, buried. They paved paradise and put up a parking lot. I remember uh, I was, um, um, the pl- I believe, I'm not sure if it's still true, the place where they stabbed Julius Caesar in real life, uh-huh. also a parking lot. Yeah. But you can go to the spot in that parking lot. Like, that spot is marked <laughs> off, if memory serves. I saw this in a, like a, a, person, a friend of mine that had a vacation there. That's and funny. they found out that it's marked. Like, you stabbed right here, and you can park here for ten bucks. <laughs> Parked on the spot where Caesar got stabbed. Yeah. It's nice. Uh yeah, and that that's what was going on. There was just so much history, and there was not, not a lot of care done with his body. Yeah. And because of the propaganda, there wasn't a care to keep his location public. Yeah. He wasn't considered, like, a, a very popular king. So, yeah, the, the kings that followed tried to besmirch his good name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was something that they, they tried to do, try to save his uh, his good name. Um, Alexandre Desplat does the movie, or the music for this movie. But the same. And, uh... And he is like in John Williams Overdrive in this one. Oh, really? Like everything's big, sweeping orchestral scores. It makes everything feel big and cinematic. Yeah. Even while Sally Hawkins is just like meeting in pubs and lecture halls. Uh, and there's this one cute bit of magical realism. Uh, early in the movie, she goes to see a production of Shakespeare's Richard III. Mm-hmm. And the actor who plays Richard III keeps appearing to her um, throughout the adventure to, like, give her advice. It's the actor who plays Richard III, like, someone fun? like No, it's just some guy. Oh, okay. Uh, and, and, he's, and he's in theatrical makeup. He's wearing, like, felt and a plastic yeah. crown. He's just He appears to her as Richard III. I'm saying it could have been fun and, uh, if, like, the version she was watching starred, I don't know, Chiwetelo Giafor, some, be some fun, random yeah. cool actor that, that like, Stephen Frears has worked with yeah, before, because yeah, yeah. he, he was in Dirty Pretty Things. Yeah. Um, uh, no, it's just some guy, and okay. that conceit is a little bit adrift. I'm not really sure why that guy's in there. There's a probably to the make idea it feel that like less boring. They probably want something make it a little more to, cinematic, yeah. and she keeps talking to him as if he's actually there, even when other people are in the room. Oh. So like it's like he's a hallucination after a while. It's a little bit odd. You start worrying about the protagonist yeah. a little bit. I think this is an interesting story. I think um, nerds about British history are going to love a movie like this. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is a fun way to do 
a true story because it's actually told from the character's perspective Mm -hmm. and the things that are at stake are all at stake just for her personally. Mm -hmm. She doesn't want to feel like she failed. Uh, And, you know, it's, it's important to uncover this kind of history, but if we don't, what have we lost? And it's not like sort of foregone conclusion, like Tetris where it's like, Oh, we know this is going to be a thing. You're sort of cooing at the cat over Sorry, there. Sorry, yeah. Luca the cat, uh, when it's like, he knows that when the podcast is over, I usually give him a few treats. Uh-huh. And he's just like, you've been going for an hour and a half. Hmm. <laughs> you've been going for an hour and a half and I could have treats now. So he does this thing where he walks up to my chair and he puts his little paws on the arm of my chair. And then he reaches one up to me as if to say, Father, please, I beg of you. Just a morsel of food to tide me over until we break the fast in the morn. I'll give you some treats. Tell me about... But, uh, um, yeah, the, the Richard yeah. III Society um, has, has been an operator. They were founded in like the 1920s. Yeah. And I don't know if they broke up when they found Richard's body. Cause, uh, Is that the whole point? I thought the whole point was to redeem him historically. Well, it's to redeem him historically. Yeah, and well, uh, and I think they're still, still, still fighting that. Yeah. yeah. God, Shakespeare, you jerk. You nut. We should start the Salieri Society because Amadeus did him no favors. That's true. Well, and well, I think of of what movies do and and art does to um, alter our perceptions of of the real world. It gives us an idea like we have in our head of what the past looks like, probably based on what movies painted it as. And if uh, they didn't do their research, then tough shit. You know? And uh, so... You, Salieri is a great yeah. example of this. Uh, Salieri was sort of a villainous figure in Milos Forman's film version of Amadeus. Yeah. He was actually just a respected composer who yeah. didn't have a rivalry with Mozart. No, the, the, uh, he was, he was the, 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 I think it was Anthony Schaefer wanted to make a point. Mm. He used Salieri to do that, but Salieri was not a very well-known figure, so now mm. everyone assumes that that's just who that guy was. Yeah, and... Um, I think a lot good, of also good, good movie making, yeah, but not good history. I think, uh, I think a lot about how a lot of like like people when they make historical movies or even historical fiction, and they make it populated with a multicultural hmm. uh, uh, a group of not just white people, uh-huh. um, and some people are like, hey. There so, weren't so, non-white oh, you, people. You mean, and, you mean racist people? Yeah, right? like right, yeah, but okay. people are just like some people are like, hey, th- I've never seen a movie. Hmm. Where things were multicultural at the time. And I'm like, yeah, those movies were made in really racist times. <laughs> and they wanted to give work to white people and not people of color yeah. for a variety of shitty reasons. So that's why you haven't seen that. Those movies that gave you an image of what the past looked like, uh, and, those were the ones that were more inaccurate. And, and it's not just history. Uh, look at a movie like Jaws. Thanks yeah. to Jaws, people started hating sharks yeah. and thinking they were like aggressive animals. They're, they're really like, not. No, uh, like there are very few shark attacks yeah. any given year. Like and, it's really not a big issue. The reason shark and the reason sharks attack people is because they think they're seals. Sharks yeah. can't see very well. And you know, you look at a surfer from below, it looks a little bit like a seal. Yeah, they're not they're not. Uh, going after you they're just no. they're just a bunch of dumb sharks they're yeah they're they're, they're pretty skittish animals from what i understand yeah, like, and but movies, because of those movies yeah. uh it's given people who hunt sharks impunity yeah. to just kill them off this is why it's uh we talk about so uh, you know when you're dealing you can say to yourself oh it's just a movie yeah but movies should be whenever possible made responsibly yeah because and, when you create an image in people's heads of mm. this is the way things are especially if it's something that they don't know about well like a lot of history, for example, mm-hmm. or the realities of certain animals, that just becomes the thing that people yeah, think so, of. Uh, it's dangerous. 
It we, creates we bigoted to, uh, notions. It creates weird hatred of innocent animals. Uh, it, uh, or, you know, e- even in the most innocent case, it creates kind of a calcified uh, canon of art. Yeah. Uh, pe- people uh, are afraid to sort of relitigate stuff and relitigate how, it, you know, the messages it's saying. Uh, luckily, we do do that. We reconsider our art. We reconsider our, our films a lot. But Carry your treats. <laughs> Enjoy. But some of the films that we've made, some of the art we've had uh, has been around for so long, we haven't even thought to relitigate some of it. I think that's what is kind of lurking underneath something like The Lost King. It's trying to get us to reconsider not just Richard III specifically, but, you know, the what... Uh, popular arts have done Sorry. to our perceptions of reality. Yeah. Uh, I. It would have been nice if it had sort of delved into that. It's a little bit too like sort of plummy and light mm. to get into such heady notions. Stephen Frears is clearly just knocking this one out. Yeah. It feels like it was shot over a weekend. It, ha- it has the breezy quality that I wanted something like Dungeons and Dragons to have. Ah. Um, you if, want Dungeons and Dragons shot over a weekend. That'd be nice. Yeah, it'd be pretty, pretty kind of fun. It's gonna be a lot of green screen. Ah, green screen. Yeah, just you ruined film, it. Just film at a park. You're fine. Anyway, tell me about uh, uh, smoking but, causes coughing. We gotta move on. <laughs> okay, we gotta move on. Uh, uh, one last thing, just, okay. uh, just so I can finish up my review a little ah. bit is is uh, if you are into that kind of thing, if you're into British history, then this will be incredibly thrilling. Mm. If you're not you're probably going to be the 10 year old who was taken along by your parents and you're going to want to see Dungeons and Dragons afterwards. I don't know, man. I was taken by my parents to see stuff like this when I really wanted to go see blockbusters. Uh, It was not uncommon for me to leave the theater going, that was really neat. I want to buy a book about that. (laughs) And we go to a bookstore afterwards. Like that's kind of fun. So don't, don't, don't rule it out. Sometimes this is a fun way to introduce young people to stuff like this, even though it seems like it's a story for adults. Anyway, but yeah, tell me about Smoking Causes Coughing, which is Uh, true. Smoking Causes Coughing uh, is the latest, another notable director, the latest film from Quentin Dupieux. Um, I'm not sure if you know Quentin Dupieux. I know. Uh, He, uh, I I first got to know his movie in 2010 when he made a movie called Rubber, uh, which is about a psychic killer car tire that rolls around the American countryside and like explodes people's brains with mind bullets. Yeah. And it's... But it's told. It's, it's, <laughs> We're just moving on. <laughs> well, it, it rubber is told in such a way where um, it, it, Steve, uh, an actor I really like named Stephen Spinella, comes out and gives this an introduction about how films have no meaning. Nothing makes sense. Why did I do this? Why did I pour out a glass of water just now? No reason. Uh, and that kind of adolescent. Uh, disregard of meaning mm-hmm. sort of like very immature version of nihilism it has been the note that quentin depew has been on ever since he's also made movies called wrong wrong cops which i don't think is a, a sequel no, he did one called deerskin which was about a haunted deerskin jacket mm. uh the last movie of his i saw was called mandibles and i actually kind of hated mandibles oh. which is about these two uh none too bright beavis and butthead type of characters who discover a gigantic fly and they feel like they can make a lot of money off of the fly and um it's not not as funny as it sounds oh dear smoking causes coughing might be one of my favorite movies this year oh wow um, it's early for that yeah. too 
Uh, well, I mean, we saw Skinnamarink, and I knew Skinnamarink is kind of like... I mean, you can uh, tell a great kind of, movie, kind of but like to, to, to in there. feel pretty confident that mm. it's not going to be like overshadowed by the next yeah. nine months worth of films yeah. is, is um, a lot. That's a, that's a strong endorsement. That's all my point. Smoking causes cough, and it has this kind of really lazy lo-fi aesthetic mm-hmm. on purpose. Everything's meant to look really, really cheap, uh, and it also has that kind of stoner lack of focus that is actually the central feature of the movie. Okay. Uh, so it's about a tokusatsu style superhero team called Tobacco Force. Okay. And each of the members of Tobacco Force, they wear masks and they have these sort of like slim fitting superhero outfits. And they have names like menthol and benzene and mercury and ammonium. And they use the power of cigarettes to destroy, like, Gamera monsters. Okay, so is this, like, taking place inside the world of, like, a fake commercial campaign or no, movie no, I, that was, like... I don't... You tell me. Because I mean, it sounds it's like... presented fa- as do, do you remember, like, when we were kids and they would have, like, commercials for, like, hmm. toothpaste that was all, like, these toothpaste superheroes oh, fighting yeah, yeah. cavities and the cavities well, were actual monsters? Hold on. Uh, it's not that because they're not cigarette spokespeople they don't work for the cigarette company well and in fact they don't approve of smoking oh tobacco force wants to prove that if they can use what's in tobacco as a weapon against evil and it destroys the evil people you see in fact they even hate smoking is the the movie about how that's a spectacularly mixed message uh there somebody does address that and and one of the first shots of the movie it's just this uh Family on a road trip, they get out to, you know, sort of pee on the side of the road, and they see in the distance Tobacco Force uh-huh. fighting with, like, a Gamera monster. And they explode it, and when the monster explodes, it gets gore all over them, and the gore even reaches, like, the people in the van who are, like, a half mile away, uh-huh. and it just goes on and on, all these people getting splashed with gore. It's yeah. hilarious. And later on, this kid walks up to them, He's still coated in gore, like later in the movie. Uh-huh. He's like, so why are you tobacco force? Like, no, no, no. And he has to explain it to them. We we don't approve of smoking. We use smoking as a bad thing. And the kid's like, uh, oh, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, into this world comes the premise of Boccaccio's The Decameron. Because <laughs> they okay. are, they're told, you, we saw video of this last fight you had with the Gamera monster. Uh-huh. And uh, we're going to get a call from your boss. And the boss is a puppet that looks like the rat from Meet the Feebles. It's this really revolting creature that's constantly, like, drooling slime. Okay. But has this really kind of stead bedroom voice. Hey, you guys are... uh you guys aren't working very well together. And for some reason, this, like, rat creature is treated as, like, sexually irresistible. Like, women have to sleep with this rat monster. <laughs> Okay. So the, the female members of of, uh, of the Tobacco Force are like constantly flirting with him. It's like you you really want me, don't you? It's like, hey, what do you think? It's like I, I have no time for this right now. <laughs> you need to go on a retreat. And they go on a retreat, and while they're on the retreat, all they do is tell stories, and it becomes this kind of anthology film where they cut away from the, the Tobacco Force so they can tell stories, and we see what goes on in their stories. Are those stories related to? Tobacco? Not a fucking wit. <laughs> They're they completely unrelated so with this anything. Is just like, well, give me, give me an example. Like, are they all the same genre? These stories? Are they different genres? Um, or? 
Let's see. Can, uh, can we just a quick gist? It's like one of them, like a funny one, rom com, and one of them a slasher is movie. one of them is kind of like about? a horror story, okay. where uh, a bunch of people go to like a summer vacation and they find a this mysterious looking like diving helmet in the uh-huh. closet. And one of them puts it on, and it's called a thinking helmet, uh-huh. and it's sort of like sensory deprivation. And once you're in there, you just sort of think clearly. And she starts thinking clearly, and the only thing she can think of is, is how disgusting all the people are around her, and she starts to murder them off. Oh, okay. Uh, so a little bit of a slasher thing. All right. Uh, and then uh, somebody else comes in and tells a different, st- a little girl sort of wanders over and she, she tells a different story that doesn't have an ending. Sort of like, and then this horrible thing happened. Oh, what, what's the conclusion? Nothing, just something horrible happened. There's a, another story about a, f- a man who gets caught in a wood chipper and because of union rules, they can't pull him out. <laughs> And that goes in a really bizarre, that's, bizarre. That sounds like, about right. Eventually, they just have like a bucket of this guy. Um, it just sure. goes in stranger and stranger's directions. And uh, meanwhile, back in the sort of the bookend material, um, there's this like lizard man from outer space who's going to be taking over the planet, but the Tobacco Force can't stop them because they're on this retreat. If you know the Decameron, medieval work of Italian literature. Uh, it's it's about uh, this group of people who are fleeing the plague. There's a plague in the big cities, so they go out into the country so they can sort of yeah. wait it out while essentially the world ends in the cities. And in order to pass the time, they each tell 10 stories. So there's yeah. hundreds of stories to Cameron over the course of, I think it's 10 days. Um, and you get to read every one of those stories. Yeah. Um, it's a similar premise to something like the Canterbury Tales. It's yeah, a, yeah, sort yeah. of a... a good book ending material where you can just sort of have a bunch of different stories or even Thousand and One Nights. Mm-hmm. One desperate situation, a lot of stories getting told. Right. Canterbury Tales, they're on the road. It's a little bit different. You should read all of these books, by the way. They're all excellent. I feel will like, be on the final. I feel like uh, Quentin Depew is sort of like putting his thumb in the nose of something like the Decameron. It's like, okay, everything's really, really desperate, we're go- but we're going to tell it in this completely absurd, totally stupid tokusatsu uh, tobacco right. world. And there's a lot of half-thought-out Adult Swim-level kinds of jokes, like uh, when they go out of their retreats, like, oh, look, we have planks to sleep on. We love planks. Uh, and then they open their fridge. It's like, oh, and look at our fridge. There's a whole grocery store inside, and there's, like, a person working inside of their fridge. Uh-huh. Later on, he's like, opens up, and like, do you have any aspirin? No, this is a fridge. We only got food in here. Yeah. You sure? Yeah. Okay, and they just close the fridge. Somebody's just living in their fridge. Yeah. Okay, if somebody's laughing at that, somebody's no, listening, no, no, I'm, I'm somebody's not, not listening to this, and they they think that might be completely delightful. I found this complete I, I, to be like just Whitney, hilarious idiocy. Whitney, I'm not gonna lie. Uh-huh. You have sold me on this film. <laughs> okay, I just can't do anything about that right mm-hmm. now because we're doing a podcast. I understand. Later that. on, I will watch it uh-huh. because you have sold me on the film. Okay, I'm glad. and it sounds fantastic, mm-hmm. and I'm very interested. So thank yeah. you. Uh, I, I just do, can't do anything about it right now. I so I'm reserving to, uh, my energy for yeah. later when I will surely laugh at the film. Yeah, I, I don't want to give the impression this movie with all this kooky stuff in it is very high energy. It's actually incredibly laconic. Ah. It's really uh, low budget. It's really kind of downbeat. It's really kind of deadpan. Uh, and it does have that kind of late night adult swim uh, feeling to it. Like the whole point of these things is that they're going to lose focus and mm. that it's not building to anything. Um, for me, that's a feature. For others, that might be a bug. Right. Uh, so, you're te- you, 
your tastes aren't going to run necessarily on the same vibe as something like smoking, smoking causes coughing, but I enjoyed the hell out of it. Noted. Okay. Well, uh, let's review some movies on our critically acclaimed scale. Mm -hmm. Once again, that scale runs from C minus to C plus. The lowest a film can get is below average. That's a big old scale from just kind of to the worst thing ever made. That gets you a C minus. That's below average. Average is a C bit of a mixed bag. A C it's either not particularly good or great, or some things are great, some things crap. All averages out to a C. <laughs> well done. Yeah, and a C plus is above average. Everything from we just kind of liked it quite a bit to we think it's the best movie ever made. That would be in a C plus. Whitney, on that note, uh, give uh, smoking causes coughing. Um, a critically acclaimed rating. I'm going to give it a C plus. I figured uh, you would. I, 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 I'd be surprised if we didn't at this point. I haven't liked all of Quentin Dupuis' movies. I think his uh, sense of humor can be really insufferable at times, but I feel like he nailed it this time around. And uh, just there's enough silly stuff in it to keep you interested. Nice. Okay, uh, let's hear The Lost King. I see. Uh, you know, huh? a, a bit dry. Good one to see with your parents or even your grandparents. Uh, at, again, if you're interested in British history, I think you'll be a little bit more interested. Yeah. Uh, if you're not, maybe not. All right. Uh, Tori and Lokita. Uh, that's a C plus movie. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, the Darden brothers do what they do quite well. Mm. Uh, an important story about you know immigration, the people who get sort of shoved aside by society, sort of forced into criminal enterprises, and and the, the pain that causes. Right. Uh, let's see here. Tetris. Uh, big old C minus. Oh, this is a goose egg of a movie. Yeah, big wow. C minus. Not, not, not terribly. In I think it's a more interesting story than this movie. Uh, I feel like the actual reality of it would be more interesting to read about than this fakey drama that they tried to put together. Okay, I'm giving it a very low C plus actually. Oh, my I, I actually, okay. it, it's very much my jam. Again, Terry Nugent is miscast. Mm -hmm. That's why it's kind of right in the edge of a C. Uh, well, I, but I like dry stories. I don't mind that. I like uh, that's. The, the, I didn't think this was particularly dry. In fact, I actually thought they did a pretty good job of taking what could have been a pretty boring story about business and making it something that feels actually kind of significant. And I'm sure they're overselling it a smidge, but there's something incredibly satisfying about seeing a film that a cares about video games as art and b understands that video games actually have this interesting place mm -hmm. in modern history that maybe has been unexamined and the sort of ripple effects uh of this art that again is largely not regarded as terribly significant especially in the 1980s being that significant and being the source of a pretty solid cold war spy film uh i mostly dug it I, I think it pretty much works except for the, the casting of the main character. And I didn't think it, as much as that sucks and I want to put an asterisk next to it, the movie itself is still quite good. Uh, let's see. Te uh, John Wick, Chapter 4. John, uh, so I'm giving it a C plus. Uh, I'm, I'm going to give it a C. You know, it's not a okay. total wash. It's just there's way too much of it. Yeah. Uh, so much muchness. I, I, would, I would love to see a director's cut that's like 100. Because the first one was 101 minutes and uh -huh. this one's 169 minutes. Well, apparently the director's cut of this was four hours and he had to cut it down. Uh, keep going. <laughs> Cut, cut, cut more. Yeah. <laughs> you're, on, you're on the right path. There you go. Uh, this is supposedly the last one. I understand the need to have sort of a big finale, you know, make it as big as possible. They're doing a spinoff. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, and there's a TV series about the origin of the Continental Hotel, and I really don't give a care. But yeah. um, 
yeah, if, if you're into the John Wick movies and you're into the big mythology, this has a lot of it. Okay. If you're into the action, this has a lot of it. If you have greater stamina than I, then maybe you'll enjoy it. All right. And lastly, Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. Uh, nice square C. Okay. Uh, it, it, it's not ever going to be anything big, bigger than that. I think it's yeah. charming, competent, a little, little bit generic mm-hmm. in terms of its characters and its writing, but I feel it's also affable and fun and bright and mm-hmm. really easy to watch. That's my thing. Is it's it's maybe it's a little unambitious, but I can't think of a reason not to recommend this to anybody other than it could have been even better. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I kind of feel like I have to give this a C plus. It's a solidly entertaining, uh, uh, full of great characters who I was very amused by and actually gave a shit about. There's some amusing and interesting set pieces that I hadn't seen before. Uh, and yeah, it, it it takes the characters seriously enough that I am invested in their story, but ultimately I feel it's it's so flip it feels a little insubstantial, but mm. that's not a bad movie to exist or anything like that. It's just it's a bit of a, a, a it's just a bit of a blockbuster, isn't mm. it? A bit of a block, yeah. It's just a bit of a blockbuster, isn't it? It's I like guess that's kind of big, like big 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 budget. It's yeah. like 150 million dollars. It's designed movie, to yeah. be appealing. It appeals. <laughs> it doesn't do much more than that, mm. but it does I, uh, that very well. And I can't deny that it did that job very well. So I got to give it a C plus. I, I, I talked to somebody, they were talking about a couple things about how, you know, how the, the word crowd pleaser can be a bit of a pejorative. Yeah. Like crowd pleaser. That means it's sort of like it's trying to appeal to everybody. Yeah. And, and yeah. sometimes it does it's yeah. a big, big appealing movie. Everybody likes that kind of a movie, but the, the kinds of movies that are that widely appealing tend to be less complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they don't want to make re- big they statements. Re- yeah, they don't require a lot from the audience. They're just sort of enjoyable. Yeah. No, and, they're, they're, they're afraid of and, pissing people off. Yeah, uh, That's the question. With, are you trying to be something that everyone can enjoy, or are you just trying not to piss people off? Yeah. That's a big question, and I think there's some great movies that are the kind of thing almost anyone can enjoy. Hmm. I think it's maybe some of the better Pixar movies, for example. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like a lot of the more completely forgettable yet arguably very functional blockbusters are just trying not to offend anybody. Yeah. They're just trying to just be just sort of there. Mm-hmm. And that's not as interesting to me. Yeah. And I feel like this is kind of straddling the line. But anyway, it's still, still fun. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, next time on the critically acclaimed podcast, we're going to be reviewing Super Mario Brothers. The other one. No, the other one. <laughs> Actually, technically the third Super Mario Brothers movie after the Bob Hoskins mm-hmm. film and an anime film from the 1980s. Uh, but we're going to be reviewing the shit out of that. There's also mm-hmm. a new comedy starring Owen Wilson that's kind of about Bob Ross, but not, called Paint. Uh, there's a new Kelly Reichardt movie. We're going to be reviewing that, hopefully. Uh, I, I really hope I can make it to the Kelly Reichardt yeah. movie. Um, I, I'm also going to be seeing the new Ben Affleck film. Oh, yeah, Air. Uh, which is, uh, yeah, yeah an- another... Corporate we, drama. Yeah, weird drama about sort of the the power and goodness of corporate symbolism. Theoretically, we'll see how it goes. Um, but yeah, it's, that's coming up as well. So, big week next time on Critically Acclaimed. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you want to talk about anything we discussed in this episode, you can always email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email and an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Yeah, send us an actual piece of physical mail to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yeah. Uh, I also have another Patreon, patreon.com slash saltcatsoap, all one word. Uh, that is the uh, Patreon where it's a Soap of the Month Club. 
And in addition to uh, sending out uh, one or two uh, designer soaps a month, uh, we also have a special podcast hosted by myself and my partner, M. Lapis Da Silva, where we talk about things that are going on in our lives, a bit more personal stuff. Uh, stuff about uh, personal self-improvement, what we're reading lately, uh, our cats. We've had a whole lot of conversation about our new cat, Dante, on the latest episode of that. You can even listen to a preview. If you go on over to patreon.com slash saltcatsoap, you can listen to... Uh, it's a new thing Patreon does now on the exclusive Patreon podcast. You can put like a short preview of the podcast and just let people hear a clip. So you can hear a clip. And there's also a, a section on that Patreon where you can only subscribe to the podcast. That is available as well. We also have a Ko-Fi store, ko-fi.com slash saltcatsoap, where we sell our soaps in addition to the Patreon. That actually ships internationally. And I just wanted to, be, uh, to throw that out there because Mother's Day is coming up and soap is a great gift. <laughs> so thank you everybody who's already made their purchases. Uh, feel free to continue to do so. And um, yeah, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. And never forget, everyone is a critic. I want to go to the Midnight Show. I'm sorry, what? Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O dot C-O.